Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 27. Butchered to Make a Roman Holiday. The Man Who Never Complained, An Exasperating Subject, Asinine Guides, The Roman Catacombs, The Saint Whose Fervor Burst His Ribs, The Miracle of the Bleeding Heart, The Legend of Ara Coli. So far so good. If any man has a right to feel proud of himself and satisfied, surely it is I, for I have written about the Colosseum, the gladiators, the martyrs, and the lions, and yet have never once used the phrase, butchered to make a Roman holiday. I am the only free white man of mature age who has accomplished this since Byron originated the expression. Butchered to make a Roman holiday sounds well for the first seventeen or eighteen hundred thousand times one sees it in print, but after that it begins to grow tiresome. I find it in all the books concerning Rome, and here, latterly, it reminds me of Judge Oliver. Oliver was a young lawyer, fresh from the schools, who had gone out to the deserts of Nevada to begin life. He found that country and our ways of life there, in those early days, different from life in New England or Paris. But he put on a woolen shirt and strapped a navy revolver to his person, took to the bacon and beans of the country, and determined to do in Nevada as Nevada did. Oliver accepted the situation so completely that, although he must have sorrowed over many of his trials, he never complained. That is, he never complained but once. He, two others, and myself, started to the new silver mines in the Humboldt Mountains, he to be probate judge of Humboldt County, and we to mine. The distance was two hundred miles. It was dead of winter. We bought a two-horse wagon and put eighteen hundred pounds of bacon, flour, beans, blasting powder, picks and shovels in it. We bought two sorry-looking Mexican plugs, with the hair turned the wrong way and more corners on their bodies than there are on the Mosque of Omar. We hitched up and started. It was a dreadful trip. But Oliver did not complain. The horses dragged the wagon two miles from town and then gave out. Then we three pushed the wagon seven miles and Oliver moved ahead and pulled the horses after him by the bits. We complained, but Oliver did not. The ground was frozen, and it froze our backs while we slept. The wind swept across our faces and froze our noses. Oliver did not complain. Five days of pushing the wagon by day and freezing by night brought us to the bad part of the journey, the forty-mile desert, or the great American desert, if you please. Still, this mildest-mannered man that ever was— had not complained. We started across at eight in the morning, pushing through sand that had no bottom, toiling all day long by the wrecks of a thousand wagons, the skeletons of ten thousand oxen, by wagon-tires enough to hoop the Washington Monument to the top, and ox-chains enough to girdle Long Island. 
by human graves, with our throats parched always with thirst, lips bleeding from the alkali dust, hungry, perspiring, and very, very weary, so weary that when we dropped in the sand every fifty yards to rest the horses, we could hardly keep from going to sleep. No complaints from Oliver. None the next morning at three o'clock, when we got across tired to death. Awakened two or three nights afterward at midnight, in a narrow cannon, by the snow falling on our faces, and appalled at the imminent danger of being snowed in, we harnessed up and pushed on till eight in the morning, passed the divide, and knew we were saved. No complaints. Fifteen days of hardship and fatigue brought us to the end of the two hundred miles, and the judge had not complained. We wondered if anything could exasperate him. We built a Humboldt house. It is done in this way. You dig a square in the steep base of the mountain, and set up two uprights, and top them with two joists. Then you stretch a great sheet of cotton domestic from the point where the joists join the hillside, down over the joists to the ground. This makes the roof and the front of the mansion. The sides and back are the dirt walls your digging has left. A chimney is easily made by turning up one corner of the roof. Oliver was sitting alone in this dismal den one night, by a sagebrush fire, writing poetry. He was very fond of digging poetry out of himself, or blasting it out when it came hard. He heard an animal's footsteps close to the roof. A stone or two and some dirt came through and fell by him. He grew uneasy, and said, "'Hi! Clear out of there, can't you?' from time to time. But by and by he fell asleep where he sat, and pretty soon a mule fell down the chimney. The fire flew in every direction, and Oliver went over backwards. About ten nights after that he recovered confidence enough to go to writing poetry again. Again he dozed off to sleep, and again a mule fell down the chimney. This time about half of that side of the house came in with the mule. Struggling to get up, the mule kicked the candle out and smashed most of the kitchen furniture, and raised considerable dust. These violent awakenings must have been annoying to Oliver, but he never complained. He moved to a mansion on the opposite side of the cannon, because he had noticed the mules did not go there. One night, about eight o'clock, he was endeavoring to finish his poem, when a stone rolled in. Then a hoof appeared below the canvas, then part of a cow the after-part. He leaned back in dread, and shouted, "'Hoy! Hoy! Get out of this!' And the cow struggled manfully, lost ground steadily, dirt and dust streamed down, and before Oliver could get well away, the entire cow crashed through onto the table, and made a shapeless wreck of everything. Then, for the first time in his life, I think, Oliver complained. He said, "'This thing is growing monotonous!' Then he resigned his judgeship, and left Humboldt County. Butchered to make a Roman holiday has grown monotonous to me. In this connection I wish to say one word about Michelangelo Buonarroti. I used to worship the mighty genius of Michelangelo, that man who was great in poetry, painting, sculpture, architecture, great in everything he undertook. But I do not want Michelangelo for breakfast, for luncheon, for dinner, for tea, for supper, for between meals. I like a change, occasionally. In Genoa he designed everything. In Milan he or his pupils designed everything. He designed the Lake of Como. In Padua, Verona, Venice, Bologna, who did we ever hear of from guides but Michelangelo? In Florence he painted everything, designed everything, nearly, and what he did not design he used to sit on a favorite stone and look at, 
and then they showed us the stone. In Pisa he designed everything but the old shot-tower, and they would have attributed that to him if it had not been so awfully out of the perpendicular. He designed the piers of Leghorn and the custom-house regulations of Civita Vecchia. But here, here it is frightful. He designed St. Peter's, he designed the Pope, he designed the Pantheon, the uniform of the Pope's soldiers, the Tiber, the Vatican, the Colosseum, the Capitol, the Tarpian Rock, the Barberini Palace, St. John Lateran, the Campagna, the Apian Way, the Seven Hills, the Baths of Caracalla, the Claudian Aqueduct, the Cloaca Maxima, the Eternal Boar designed the Eternal City, and unless all men and books do lie, he painted everything in it. Dan said the other day to the guide, Enough, 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 say no more, lump the whole thing, say that the Creator made Italy from designs by Michael Angelo. I never felt so fervently thankful, so soothed, so tranquil, so filled with a blessed peace as I did yesterday when I learned that Michael Angelo was dead. But we have taken it out of this guide. He has marched us through miles of pictures and sculpture in the vast corridors of the Vatican, and through miles of pictures and sculpture in twenty other palaces. He has shown us the great picture in the Sistine Chapel, and frescoes enough to fresco the heavens, pretty much all done by Michael Angelo. So with him we have played that game which has vanquished so many guides for us, imbecility and idiotic questions. These creatures never suspect they have no idea of a sarcasm. He shows us a figure and says, Statu Brunzo, bronze statue. We look at it indifferently, and the doctor asks, By Michael Angelo? No, not know who. Then he shows us the ancient Roman forum. The doctor asks, Michael Angelo? A stare from the guide. No, thousand year before he is born. Then an Egyptian obelisk. Again, Michael Angelo? Oh, mon Dieu, gentilmen! This is two thousand year before he is born. He grows so tired of that unceasing question sometimes that he dreads to show us anything at all. The wretch has tried all the ways he can think of to make us comprehend that Michael Angelo is only responsible for the creation of a part of the world, but somehow he has not succeeded yet. Relief for overtasked eyes and brain from study and sight-seeing is necessary, or we shall become idiotic sure enough. Therefore this guide must continue to suffer. If he does not enjoy it, so much the worse for him. We do. In this place I may as well jot down a chapter concerning those necessary nuisances, European guides. Many a man has wished in his heart he could do without his guide, but knowing he could not, has wished he could get some amusement out of him as a remuneration for the affliction of his society. We accomplish this latter matter, and if our experience can be made useful to others, they are welcome to it. Guides know about enough English to tangle everything up so that a man can make neither head or tail of it. They know their story by heart, the history of every statue, painting, cathedral, or other wonder they show you. They know it, and tell it as a parrot would, and if you interrupt and throw them off the track, they have to go back and begin over again. All their lives long they are employed in showing strange things to foreigners, and listening to their bursts of admiration. It is human nature to take delight in exciting admiration. 
It is what prompts children to say smart things, and do absurd ones, and in other ways show off when company is present. It is what makes gossips turn out in rain and storm to go and be the first to tell a startling bit of news. Think, then, what a passion it becomes with a guide, whose privilege it is every day to show to strangers wonders that throw them into perfect ecstasies of admiration. He gets so that he could not by any possibility live in a soberer atmosphere. After we discovered this, we never went into ecstasies any more. We never admired anything. We never showed any but impassable faces and stupid indifference in the presence of the sublimest wonders a guide had to display. We had found their weak point. We have made good use of it ever since. We have made some of those people savage at times, but we have never lost our own serenity. The doctor asks the questions, generally, because he can keep his countenance, and look more like an inspired idiot, and throw more imbecility into the tone of his voice than any man that lives. It comes natural to him. The guides in Genoa are delighted to secure an American party, because Americans so much wonder, and deal so much in sentiment and emotion before any relic of Columbus. Our guide there fidgeted about as if he had swallowed a spring mattress. He was full of animation, full of impatience. He said, "'Come with me, gentlemen, come! I show you the letter-writing by Christopher Colombo. Write it himself. Write it with his own hand. Come!' He took us to the municipal palace. After much impressive fumbling of keys and opening of locks, the stained and aged document was spread before us. The guide's eyes sparkled. He danced about us and tapped the parchment with his finger. "'What I tell you, gentlemen, is it not so? See, handwriting Christopher Colombo. Write it himself.' We looked indifferent, unconcerned. The doctor examined the document very deliberately during a painful pause. Then he said, without any show of interest, "'Ah, Ferguson, what, um, what did you say was the name of the party who wrote this?' "'Christopher Colombo! The great Christopher Colombo!' Another deliberate examination. "'Ah! Did he write it himself, or—or or how?' "'He write it himself, Christopher Colombo! His own handwriting! Write by himself!' Then the doctor laid the document down, and said, "'Why, I have seen boys in America only fourteen years old that could write better than that.' "'But this is the great Christopher—' "'I don't care who it is. It's the worst writing I ever saw. Now you mustn't think you can impose on us because we are strangers. We are not fools by a good deal. If you have got any specimens of penmanship of real merit, trot them out. And if you haven't, drive on.' We drove on. The guide was considerably shaken up, but he made one more venture. He had something which he thought would overcome us. He said, "'Ah, gentlemen, you come with me. I show you beautiful, oh, magnificent bust, Christopher Colombo. Splendid, grand, magnificent!' He brought us before the beautiful bust, for it was beautiful, and sprang back and struck an attitude. "'Ah, look, gentlemen, beautiful, grand bust, Christopher Colombo. Beautiful bust, beautiful pedestal!' The doctor put up his eyeglass, procured for such occasions, Ah, what did you say this gentleman's name was? Christopher Colombo, the great Christopher Colombo. Christopher Colombo, the great Christopher Colombo. Well, what did he do? Discover America! Discover America! Oh, the devil! Discover America. No, that statement will hardly wash. We are just from America ourselves. We heard nothing about it. 
Christopher Colombo, pleasant name, is, uh, is he dead? Oh, corpo de bacho, three hundred year. What did he die of? Well, I do not know. I, I cannot tell. Smallpox, think? I do not know, gentlemen. I do not know what he die of. Measles, likely. Maybe, maybe. I do not know. I think he die of some things. Parents living? Impossible. Ah, which is the bust and which is the pedestal? Santa Maria, this is the bust, this is the pedestal. Ah, I see, I see. Happy combination. Very happy combination, indeed. Is, um, is this the first time this gentleman was ever on a bust? That joke was lost on the foreigner. Guides cannot master the subtleties of the American joke. We have made it interesting for this Roman guide. Yesterday we spent three or four hours in the Vatican again, that wonderful world of curiosities. We came very near expressing interest, sometimes, even admiration. It was very hard to keep from it. We succeeded, though. Nobody else ever did, in the Vatican museums. The guide was bewildered, nonplussed. He walked his legs off nearly, hunting up extraordinary things, and exhausted all his ingenuity on us. But it was a failure. We never showed any interest in anything. He had reserved what he considered to be his greatest wonder till the last, a royal Egyptian mummy the best preserved in the world, perhaps. He took us there. He felt so sure this time that some of his old enthusiasm came back to him. See, gentlemen, mummy, mummy. The eyeglass came up as calmly, as deliberately as ever. Ah, uh, Ferguson, what did I understand you to say the gentleman's name was? Name? He got no name. Mummy. Gypsum mummy. Yes, yes. Uh, born here? No! Egyptian mummy! Ah, uh, just so. Frenchman, I presume. No! Not Frenchman! Not Roman! Born in Egypta! Born in Egypta? Never heard of Egypta before. Foreign locality, likely. Mummy! Mummy! How calm he is! How self-possessed! Is, um, is he dead? Oh, sacre bleu! Been dead three thousand year! The doctor turned on him savagely. Here, now, what do you mean by such conduct as this? Playing us for Chinamen, because we are strangers and trying to learn, trying to impose your vile second-hand carcasses on us. Thunder and lightning! I've a notion to—to—if to, to, uh, you've got a nice fresh corpse, fetch him out, or, by George, we'll brain you. We make it exceedingly interesting for this Frenchman. However, he has paid us back, partly without knowing it. He came to the hotel this morning to ask if we were up, and he endeavoured as well as he could to describe us so that the landlord would know which persons he meant. He finished with the casual remark that we were lunatics. The observation was so innocent and so honest that it amounted to a very good thing for a guide to say. There is one remark, already mentioned, which never yet has failed to disgust these guides. We use it always when we can think of nothing else to say. After they have exhausted their enthusiasm, pointing out to us and praising the beauties of some ancient bronze image or broken-legged statue, we look at it stupidly and in silence for five, ten, fifteen minutes, as long as we can hold out, in fact, and then ask, Is... is he dead? That conquers the serenest of them. It is not what they are looking for, especially a new guide. Our Roman Ferguson is the most patient, unsuspecting, long-suffering subject we have had yet. We shall be sorry to part with him. We have enjoyed his society very much. We trust he has enjoyed ours, but
but we are harassed with doubts. We have been in the catacombs. It was like going down into a very deep cellar, only it was a cellar which had no end to it. The narrow passages are roughly hewn in the rock, and on each hand, as you pass along, the hollowed shelves are carved out, from three to fourteen deep, each held a corpse once. There are names, and Christian symbols, and prayers, or sentences expressive of Christian hopes, carved upon nearly every sarcophagus. The dates belong away back in the dawn of the Christian era, of course. Here in these holes in the ground the first Christians sometimes burrowed to escape persecution. They crawled out at night to get food, but remained under cover in the daytime. The priest told us that St. Sebastian lived underground for some time while he was being hunted. He went out one day, and the soldiery discovered and shot him to death with arrows. Five or six of the early popes, those who reigned about sixteen hundred years ago, held their papal courts and advised with their clergy in the bowels of the earth. During seventeen years, from A.D. 235 to A.D. 252, the popes did not appear above ground. Four were raised to the great office during that period, four years apiece or thereabouts. It is very suggestive of the unhealthiness of underground graveyards as places of residence. One pope afterward spent his entire pontificate in the catacombs, eight years. Another was discovered in them and murdered in the episcopal chair. There was no satisfaction in being a pope in those days. There were too many annoyances. There are one hundred and sixty catacombs under Rome, each with its maze of narrow passages crossing and recrossing each other, and each passage walled to the top with scooped graves its entire length. A careful estimate makes the length of the passages of all the catacombs combined foot up nine hundred miles, and their graves number seven millions. We did not go through all the passages of all the catacombs. We were very anxious to do it, and made the necessary arrangements but our too limited time obliged us to give up the idea. So we only groped through the dismal labyrinth of St. Calixtus, under the church of St. Sebastian. In the various catacombs are small chapels rudely hewn in the stones, and here the early Christians often held their religious services by dim, ghostly lights. Think of mass and a sermon away down in those tangled caverns underground. In the catacombs were buried St. Cecilia, St. Agnes, and several other of the most celebrated of the saints. In the catacomb of St. Calixtus, St. Bridget used to remain long hours in holy contemplation, and St. Charles Borromeo was wont to spend whole nights in prayer there. It was also the scene of a very marvelous thing. Here the heart of St. Philip Neri was so inflamed with divine love as to burst his ribs. I find that grave statement in a book published in New York in 1808, and written by Rev. William H. Nelligen, LLD, M.A., Trinity College, Dublin, member of the Archaeological Society of Great Britain. Therefore I believe it. Otherwise I could not. Under other circumstances I should have felt a curiosity to know what Philip had for dinner. This author puts my credulity on its mettle every now and then. He tells of one St. Joseph Calasanctius, whose house in Rome he visited. He visited only the house. The priest has been dead two hundred years. He says the Virgin Mary appeared to this saint. Then he continues, His tongue and his heart, which were found after nearly a century to be whole, when the body was disinterred, before his canonization, are still preserved in a glass case, and after two centuries the heart is still whole. 
When the French troops came to Rome, and when Pius VII was carried away prisoner, blood dropped from it. To read that in a book written by a monk far back in the Middle Ages would surprise no one. It would sound natural and proper. But when it is seriously stated in the middle of the nineteenth century by a man of finished education, an LLD, M.A., and an archaeological magnate, it sounds strangely enough. Still, I would gladly change my unbelief for Nelligan's faith, and let him make the conditions as hard as he pleased. The old gentleman's undoubting, unquestioning simplicity has a rare freshness about it, in these matter-of-fact railroading and telegraphing days. Hear him concerning the church of Ara Coeli. In the roof of the church, directly above the high altar, is engraved Regina Coeli Laitare Alleluia. In the sixth century Rome was visited by a fearful pestilence. Gregory the Great urged the people to do penance, and a general procession was formed. It was to proceed from the Aracoeli to St. Peter's. As it passed before the Mole of Adrian, now the castle of St. Angelo, the sound of heavenly voices was heard singing. It was Easter morn. Regina Coeli, Leitare, Alleluia! Qui quem nervisti portare, Alleluia! Resurgexit, sicut dixit, Alleluia! The pontiff, carrying in his hands the portrait of the Virgin, which is over the high altar and is said to have been painted by St. Luke, answered, with the astonished people, Ora pro nobis Deum, Alleluia! At the same time an angel was seen to put up a sword in a scabbard, and the pestilence ceased on the same day. There are four circumstances which confirm the italics are mine, M.T. This miracle, the annual procession which takes place in the Western Church on the Feast of St. Mark, the statue of St. Michael, placed on the mole of Adrian, which has since that time been called the Castle of St. Angelo, the antiphone Regina Coeli, which the Catholic Church sings during Paschal time, and the inscription in the church. End of chapter 27 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain Chapter 28 Picturesque Horrors The Legend of Brother Thomas Sorrows Scientifically Analyzed A Festive Company of the Dead The Great Vatican Museum Artist's Sins of Omission The Rape of the Sabines Papal Protection of Art High Price of Old Masters Improved Scripture Scale of Rank of the Holy Personages in Rome Scale of Honors Accorded Them Fossilizing away for Naples. From the sanguinary sports of the Holy Inquisition, the slaughter of the Colosseum, and the dismal tombs of the catacombs, I naturally passed to the picturesque horrors of the Capuchin convent. We stopped a moment in a small chapel in the church to admire a picture of St. Michael vanquishing Satan, a picture which is so beautiful that I cannot but think it belongs to the reviled Renaissance, notwithstanding I believe they told us one of the ancient old masters painted it, and then we descended into the vast vault underneath. Here was a spectacle for sensitive nerves. Evidently the old masters had been at work in this place. There were six divisions in the apartment, and each division was ornamented with a style of decoration peculiar to itself, and these decorations were in every instance formed of human bones. 
There were shapely arches, built wholly of thigh-bones. There were startling pyramids, built wholly of grinning skulls. There were quaint architectural structures of various kinds, built of shin-bones and the bones of the arm. On the wall were elaborate frescoes, whose curving vines were made of knotted human vertebrae, whose delicate tendrils were made of sinews and tendons, whose flowers were formed of knee-caps and toe-nails. Every lasting portion of the human frame was represented in these intricate designs. They were by Michelangelo, I think. And there was a careful finish about the work, and an attention to details that betrayed the artist's love of his labors as well as his schooled ability. I asked the good-natured monk who accompanied us, Who did this? And he said, We did it, meaning himself and his brethren upstairs. I could see that the old friar took a high pride in his curious show. We made him talkative by exhibiting an interest we never betrayed to guides. Who were these people? We, upstairs, monks of the Capuchin order, my brethren. How many departed monks were required to upholster these six parlors? These are the bones of four thousand. It took a long time to get enough. Many, many centuries. Their different parts are well separated, skulls in one room, legs in another, ribs in another. There would be stirring times here for a while, if the last trump should blow. Some of the brethren might get a hold of the wrong leg in the confusion, and the wrong skull, and find themselves limping and looking through eyes that were wider apart or closer together than they were used to. You cannot tell any of these parties apart, I suppose. Oh, yes, I know many of them. He put his finger on a skull. This was Brother Anselmo, dead three hundred years, a good man. He touched another. This was Brother Alexander, dead two hundred and eighty years. This was Brother Carlo, dead about as long. Then he took a skull and held it in his hand and looked reflectively upon it, after the manner of the grave-digger when he discourses of Yorick. This, he said, was Brother Thomas. He was a young prince the scion of a proud house that traced its lineage back to the grand old days of Rome well nigh two thousand years ago. He loved beneath his estate. His family persecuted him, persecuted the girl as well. They drove her from Rome. He followed. He sought her far and wide. He found no trace of her. He came back and offered his broken heart at our altar and his weary life to the service of God. But look you, shortly his father died, and likewise his mother. The girl returned, rejoicing. She sought everywhere for him whose eyes had used to look tenderly into hers out of this poor skull, but she could not find him. At last, in this coarse garb we wear, she recognized him in the street. He knew her. It was too late. He fell where he stood. They took him up and brought him here. He never spoke afterward. Within the week he died. You can see the color of his hair faded somewhat by this thin shred that clings still to the temple. This, taking up a thigh-bone, was his. The veins of this leaf in the decorations over your head were his finger-joints a hundred and fifty years ago. This business-like way of illustrating a touching story of the heart by laying the several fragments of the lover before us and naming them was as grotesque a performance and as ghastly as any I ever witnessed. I hardly knew whether to smile or shudder. There are nerves and muscles in our frames whose functions and whose methods of working it seems a sort of sacrilege to describe by cold physiological names and surgical technicalities, 
and the monk's talk suggested to me something of this kind. Fancy a surgeon, with his nippers lifting tendons, muscles, and such things into view, out of the complex machinery of a corpse, and observing, now this little nerve quivers, the vibration is imparted to this muscle, from here it is passed to this fibrous substance, here its ingredients are separated by the chemical action of the blood, one part goes to the heart and thrills it with what is popularly termed emotion, another part follows this nerve to the brain and communicates intelligence of a startling character. The third part glides along this passage and touches the spring connected with the fluid receptacles that lie in the rear of the eye. Thus, by this simple and beautiful process, the party is informed that his mother is dead, and he weeps. Horrible! I asked the monk if all the brethren upstairs expected to be put in this place when they died. He answered quietly, We must all lie here at last. See what one can accustom himself to. The reflection that he must some day be taken apart like an engine or a clock, or like a house whose owner is gone, and worked up into arches and pyramids and hideous frescoes, did not distress this monk in the least. I thought even he looked as if he were thinking, with complacent vanity, that his own skull would look well on top of the heap, and his own ribs add a charm to the frescoes, which possibly they lacked at present. Here and there, in ornamental alcoves, stretched upon beds of bones, lay dead and dried-up monks, with lank frames dressed in the black robes one sees ordinarily upon priests. We examined one closely. The skinny hands were clasped upon the breast. Two lustreless tufts of hair stuck to the skull. The skin was brown and sunken. It stretched tightly over the cheekbones and made them stand out sharply. The crisp, dead eyes were deep in the sockets. The nostrils were painfully prominent, the end of the nose being gone. The lips had shriveled away from the yellow teeth, and brought down to us through the circling years, and petrified there, was a weird laugh a full century old. It was the jolliest laugh, but yet the most dreadful, that one can imagine. Surely, I thought, it must have been a most extraordinary joke this veteran produced with his latest breath that he has not gone done laughing at it yet. At this moment I saw that the old instinct was strong upon the boys, and I said we had better hurry to St. Peter's. They were trying to keep from asking, Is—is is he dead? It makes me dizzy to think of the Vatican, of its wilderness of statues, paintings, and curiosities of every description in every age. The old masters, especially in sculpture, fairly swarm there. I cannot write about the Vatican. I think I shall never remember anything I saw there distinctly but the mummies, and the transfiguration by Raphael, and some other things it is not necessary to mention now. I shall remember the transfiguration partly because it was placed in a room almost by itself, partly because it is acknowledged by all to be the first oil painting in the world, and partly because it was wonderfully beautiful. The colors are fresh and rich. The expression, I am told, is fine. The feeling is lively, the tone is good, the depth is profound, and the width is about four and a half feet, I should judge. It is a picture that really holds one's attention. Its beauty is fascinating. It is fine enough to be a renaissance. A remark I made a while ago suggests a thought and a hope. Is it not possible that the reason I find such charms in this picture is because it is out of the crazy chaos of the galleries? If some of the others were set apart, might not they be beautiful? 
if this were set in the midst of the tempest of pictures one finds in the vast galleries of the roman palaces would i think it so handsome if up to this time i had seen only one old master in each palace instead of acres and acres of walls and ceilings fairly papered with them might i not have a more civilized opinion of the old masters than i have now i think so when i was a schoolboy and was to have a new knife i could not make up my mind as to which was the prettiest in the showcase and i did not think any of them were particularly pretty and so i chose with a heavy heart but when i looked at my purchase at home where no glittering blades came into competition with it i was astonished to see how handsome it was to this day my new hats look better out of the shop than they did in it with other new hats it begins to dawn upon me now that possibly what i have been taking for uniform ugliness in the galleries may be uniform beauty after all i honestly hope it is to others but certainly it is not to me perhaps the reason i used to enjoy going to the academy of fine arts in new york was because there were but a few hundred paintings in it and it did not surfeit me to go through the list i suppose the academy was bacon and beans in the forty-mile desert and a european gallery is a state dinner of thirteen courses one leaves no sign after him of the one dish but the thirteen frighten away his appetite and give him no satisfaction there is one thing i am certain of though with all the michael angelos the raphaels the guidos and the other old masters the sublime history of rome remains unpainted they painted virgins enough and popes enough and saintly scarecrows enough to people paradise almost and these things are all they did paint nero fiddling or burning rome the assassination of caesar the stirring spectacle of a hundred thousand people bending forward with rapt interest in the Colosseum to see two skilful gladiators hacking away each other's lives, a tiger springing upon a kneeling martyr, these and a thousand other matters which we read of with a living interest must be sought for only in books, not among the rubbish left by the old masters who are no more, I have the satisfaction of informing the public. They did paint and they did carve in marble one historical scene and one only of any great historical consequence and what was it and why did they choose it particularly it was the rape of the sabines and they chose it for the legs and busts i like to look at statues however and i like to look at pictures also even of monks looking up in sacred ecstasy and monks looking down in meditation and monks skirmishing for something to eat and therefore I drop ill-nature to thank the papal government for so jealously guarding and so industriously gathering up these things, and for permitting me, a stranger, and not an entirely friendly one, to roam at will and unmolested among them, charging me nothing, and only requiring that I shall behave myself simply as well as I ought to behave in any other man's house. I thank the Holy Father right heartily, and I wish him long life and plenty of happiness." the popes have long been the patrons and preservers of art just as our new practical republic is the encourager and upholder of mechanics in their vatican is stored up all that is curious and beautiful in art in our patent office is hoarded all that is curious or useful in mechanics when a man invents a new style of horse-collar or discovers a new and superior method of telegraphing our government issues a patent to him that is worth a fortune when a man digs up an ancient statue in the Campagna, the Pope gives him a fortune in gold coin. 
we can make something of a guess at a man's character by the style of nose he carries on his face. The Vatican and the Patent Office are governmental noses, and they bear a deal of character about them. The guide showed us a colossal statue of Jupiter in the Vatican, which he said looked so damaged and rusty, so like the god of the vagabonds, because it had but recently been dug up in the Campagna. He asked how much we supposed this Jupiter was worth. I replied with intelligent promptness that he was probably worth about four dollars, maybe four and a half. A hundred thousand dollars, Ferguson said. Ferguson said further that the Pope permits no ancient work of this kind to leave his dominions. He appoints a commission to examine discoveries like this, and report upon the value. Then the Pope pays the discoverer one-half of that assessed value, and takes the statue. He said this Jupiter was dug from a field which had just been bought for thirty-six thousand dollars, so the first crop was a good one for the new farmer. I do not know whether Ferguson always tells the truth or not, but I suppose he does. I know that an exorbitant export duty is exacted upon all pictures painted by the old masters, in order to discourage the sale of those in the private collections. I am satisfied also that genuine old masters hardly exist at all in America, because the cheapest and most insignificant of them are valued at the price of a fine farm. I proposed to buy a small trifle of a Raphael myself, but the price of it was eighty thousand dollars. The export duty would have made it considerably over a hundred and so I studied on it a while, and concluded not to take it. I wish here to mention an inscription I have seen, before I forget it. Glory to God in the highest! Peace on earth to men of good will! It is not good scripture, but it is sound Catholic and human nature. This is in letters of gold around the apsis of the mosaic group at the side of the Scala Santa Church of St. John Lateran, the mother and mistress of all the Catholic churches of the world. The group represents the Saviour, St. Peter, Pope Leo, St. Sylvester, Constantine, and Charlemagne. Peter is giving the pallium to the Pope, and a standard to Charlemagne. The Saviour is giving the keys to St. Sylvester, and a standard to Constantine. No prayer is offered to the Saviour, who seems to be of little importance anywhere in Rome. But an inscription below says, Blessed Peter, give life to Pope Leo, and victory to King Charles. It does not say, Intercede for us through the Saviour with the Father for this boon, but, Blessed Peter, give it us. In all seriousness, without meaning to be frivolous, without meaning to be irreverent, and more than all, without meaning to be blasphemous, I state, as my simple deduction from the things I have seen and the things I have heard, that the holy personages rank thus in Rome. First, the Mother of God, otherwise the Virgin Mary. Second, the Deity. Third, Peter. Fourth, some twelve or fifteen canonized popes and martyrs. Fifth, Jesus Christ the Saviour, but always as an infant in arms. I may be wrong in this. My judgment errs often, just as is the case with other men's, but it is my judgment, be it good or bad. Just here I will mention something that seems curious to me. There are no Christ's churches in Rome, and no churches of the Holy Ghost, that I can discover. There are some four hundred churches, but about a fourth of them seem to be named for the Madonna and St. Peter. There are so many named for Mary, that they have to be distinguished by all sorts of affixes, if I understand the matter rightly. Then we have churches of St. Louis, St. Augustine, St. Agnes, St. Calixtus, St. Lorenzo in Lucina, St. Lorenzo in Damaso, 
St. Cecilia, St. Athanasius, St. Philip Neri, St. Catherine, St. Domenico, and a multitude of lesser saints whose names are not familiar in the world. And away down, clear out of the list of the churches, comes a couple of hospitals. One of them is named for the Saviour, and the other for the Holy Ghost. Day after day, and night after night, we have wandered among the crumbling wonders of Rome. Day after day, and night after night, we have fed upon the dust and decay of five-and-twenty centuries, have brooded over them by day, and dreamt of them by night, till sometimes we seemed mouldering away ourselves, and growing defaced and cornerless, and liable at any moment to fall a prey to some antiquary, and be patched in the legs, and restored with an unseemly nose, and labelled wrong and dated wrong, and set up in the Vatican for poets to drivel about, and vandals to scribble their names on for ever and for ever more. But the surest way to stop writing about Rome is to stop. I wish to write a real guide-book chapter on this fascinating city, but I could not do it, because I have felt all the time like a boy in a candy-shop. There was everything to choose from, and yet no choice. I have drifted along hopelessly for a hundred pages of manuscript without knowing where to commence. I will not commence at all. Our passports have been examined. We will go to Naples. End of chapter 28 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 29. Naples. In Quarantine at Last. Annunciation. Ascent of Mount Vesuvius. A Two-Cent Community. The Black Side of Neapolitan Character. Monkish Miracles. Ascent of Mount Vesuvius Continued, The Stranger and the Hackman, Night View of Naples from the Mountainside, Ascent of Mount Vesuvius Continued. The ship is lying here in the harbor of Naples, quarantined. She has been here several days, and will remain several more. We that came by rail from Rome have escaped this misfortune. Of course no one is allowed to go on board the ship, or come ashore from her. She is a prison now. The passengers probably spend the long, blazing days looking out from under the awnings at Vesuvius and the beautiful city, and in swearing. Think of ten days of this sort of pastime. We go out every day in a boat and request them to come ashore. It soothes them. We lie ten steps from the ship and tell them how splendid the city is, and how much better the hotel fare is here than anywhere else in Europe, and how cool it is and what frozen continents of ice-cream there are, and what a time we are having cavorting about the country and sailing to the islands in the bay. This tranquilizes them. Ascent of Vesuvius I shall remember our trip to Vesuvius for many a day, partly because of its sightseeing experiences, but chiefly on account of the fatigue of the journey. Two or three of us had been resting ourselves among the tranquil and beautiful scenery of the island of Ischia, eighteen miles out in the harbour, for two days. We called it resting, but I do not remember now what the resting consisted of, for when we got back to Naples we had not slept for forty-eight hours. We were just about to go to bed early in the evening and catch up on some of the sleep we had lost, when we heard of this Vesuvius expedition. There was to be eight of us in the party, and we were to leave Naples at midnight. 
we laid in some provisions for the trip, engaged carriages to take us to Annunciation, and then moved about the city to keep awake till twelve. We got away punctually, and in the course of an hour and a half arrived at the town of Annunciation. Annunciation is the very last place under the sun. In other towns in Italy the people lie around quietly and wait for you to ask them a question or do some overt act that can be charged for, but in Annunciation they have lost even that fragment of delicacy. They seize a lady's shawl from a chair and hand it to her and charge a penny. They open a carriage door and charge for it, shut it when you get out and charge for it. They help you to take off a duster, two cents, brush your clothes and make them worse than they were before, two cents, smile upon you, two cents, bow with a lick-spittle smirk, hat in hand, two cents. They volunteer all information, such as that the mules will arrive presently, two cents. Warm day, sir, two cents. Take you four hours to make the ascent, two cents. And so they go. They crowd you, infest you, swarm about you, and sweat and smell offensively, and look sneaking and mean and obsequious. There is no office too degrading for them to perform for money. I have had no opportunity to find out anything about the upper classes by my own observation, but from what I hear said about them, I judge that what they lack in one or two of the bad traits that can I have, they make up in one or two others that are worse. How the people beg! Many of them very well dressed, too. I said I knew nothing against the upper classes by personal observation. I must recall it. I had forgotten. What I saw their bravest and their fairest do last night, the lowest multitude that could be scraped up out of the purlieus of Christendom would blush to do, I think. They assembled by hundreds and even thousands in the great theatre of San Carlo to do what? Why, simply, to make fun of an old woman, to deride, to hiss, to jeer at an actress they once worshipped, but whose beauty is faded now and whose voice has lost its former richness. Everybody spoke of the rare sport there was to be. They said the theatre would be crammed, because Fresolini was going to sing. It was said she could not sing well now, but then the people liked to see her anyhow. And so we went. And every time the woman sang they hissed and laughed, the whole magnificent house, and as soon as she left the stage they called her on again with applause. Once or twice she was encored five and six times in succession, and received with hisses when she appeared, and discharged with hisses and laughter when she had finished, then instantly encored and insulted again. And how the high-born knaves enjoyed it! White-kidded gentlemen and ladies laughed till the tears came, and clapped their hands in very ecstasy when that unhappy old woman would come meekly out for the sixth time, with uncomplaining patience, to meet a storm of hisses. It was the cruelest exhibition, the most wanton, the most unfeeling. The singer would have conquered an audience of American rowdies by her brave, unflinching tranquillity, for she answered encore after encore, and smiled and bowed pleasantly, and sang the best she possibly could, and went bowing off through all the jeers and hisses, without ever losing countenance or temper. And surely, in any other land than Italy, her sex and her helplessness must have been an ample protection to her. She could have needed no other. Think what a multitude of small souls were crowded into that theatre last night. 
If the manager could have filled his theatre with Neapolitan souls alone, without the bodies, he could not have cleared less than ninety millions of dollars. What traits of character must a man have to enable him to help three thousand miscreants to hiss and jeer and laugh at one friendless old woman and shamefully humiliate her? He must have all the vile, mean traits there are. My observation persuades me—I do not like to venture beyond my own personal observation—that the upper classes of Naples possess those traits of character. Otherwise, they may be very good people. I cannot say. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. In this city of Naples, they believe in and support one of the wretchedest of all the religious impostors one can find in Italy the miraculous liquefaction of the blood of St. Januarius. Twice a year the priests assemble all the people at the cathedral, and get out this vial of clotted blood, and let them see it slowly dissolve and become a liquid. And every day for eight days this dismal farce is repeated, while the priests go among the crowd and collect money for the exhibition. The first day the blood liquefies in forty-seven minutes. The church is crammed, then, and time must be allowed the collectors to get around. After that it liquefies a little quicker, and a little quicker, every day, as the houses grow smaller, till on the eighth day, with only a few dozens present to see the miracle, it liquefies in four minutes. And here, also, they used to have a grand procession of priests, citizens, soldiers, sailors, and the high dignitaries of the city government, once a year, to shave the head of a made-up Madonna, a stuffed and painted image, like a milliner's dummy, whose hair miraculously grew and restored itself every twelve months. They still kept up this shaving procession as late as four or five years ago. It was a source of great profit to the church that possessed the remarkable effigy and the ceremony of the public barbering of her was always carried out with the greatest possible eclat and display. The more, the better, because the more excitement there was about it, the larger the crowds it drew, and the heavier the revenues it produced. But at last a day came when the Pope and his servants were unpopular in Naples, and the city government stopped the Madonna's annual show. There we have two specimens of these Neapolitans two of the silliest possible frauds which half the population religiously and faithfully believed, and the other half either believed also or else said nothing about, and thus lent themselves to the support of the imposture. I am very well satisfied to think the whole population believed in those poor cheap miracles, a people who want two cents every time they bow to you, and who abuse a woman, are capable of it, I think. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. These Neapolitans always ask four times as much money as they intend to take, but if you give them what they first demand, they feel ashamed of themselves for aiming so low, and immediately ask more. When money is to be paid and received, there is always some vehement jawing and gesticulating about it. One cannot buy and pay for two cents' worth of clams without trouble and a quarrel. One course in a two-horse carriage costs a franc, uh, that is law. But the hackman always demands more, on some pretense or other, and if he gets it he makes a new demand. It is said that a stranger took a one-horse carriage for a course, tariff half a franc. He gave the man five francs by way of experiment. He demanded more, and received another franc. Again he demanded more, and got a franc. Demanded more, and it was refused. He grew vehement, was again refused, and became noisy. The stranger said, "Well." Give me the seven francs again, and I will see what I can do. And when he got them, he handed the hackman 
half a franc, and he immediately asked for two cents to buy a drink with. It may be thought that I am prejudiced. Perhaps I am. I would be ashamed of myself if I were not. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. Well, as I was saying, we got our mules and horses after an hour and a half of bargaining with the population of Annunciation, and started sleepily up the mountain, with a vagrant at each mule's tail who pretended to be driving the brute along, but was really holding on and getting himself dragged up instead. I made slow headway at first, but I began to get dissatisfied at the idea of paying my minion five francs to hold my mule back by the tail and keep him from going up the hill and so I discharged him. I got along faster then. We had one magnificent picture of Naples from a high point on the mountainside. We saw nothing but the gas lamps, of course, two-thirds of a circle skirting the great bay, a necklace of diamonds glinting up through the darkness from the remote distance, less brilliant than the stars overhead, but more softly, richly beautiful. And over all the great city the lights crossed and recrossed each other, in many and many a sparkling line and curve, and back of the town, far around and abroad over the miles of level Campania, were scattered rows and circles and clusters of lights, all glowing like so many gems, and marking where a score of villages were sleeping. About this time the fellow who was hanging on to the tail of the horse in front of me, and practicing all sorts of unnecessary cruelty upon the animal, got kicked some fourteen rods, and this incident, together with the fairy spectacle of the lights far in the distance, made me serenely happy, and I was glad I started to Vesuvius. Ascent of Mount Vesuvius continued. This subject will be excellent matter for a chapter, and to-morrow or next day I will write it. End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 Ascent of Mount Vesuvius continued. Beautiful view at dawn less beautiful view in the back streets. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. Dwellings a hundred feet high. A motley procession. Bill of fare for a peddler's breakfast. Princely salaries. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. An average of prices. The wonderful Blue Grotto. Visit to celebrated localities in the Bay of Naples. The poisoned grotto of the dog. A petrified sea of lava. Ascent of Mount Vesuvius continued. The summit reached. Description of the crater. Descent of Vesuvius. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. See Naples and die. Well, I do not know that one would necessarily die after merely seeing it, but to attempt to live there might turn out a little differently. To see Naples as we saw it in the early dawn from far up on the side of Vesuvius is to see a picture of wonderful beauty. At that distance its dingy buildings looked white, and so, rank on rank of balconies, windows and roofs, they piled themselves up from the blue ocean, till the colossal castle of St. Elmo topped the grand white pyramid, and gave the picture symmetry, emphasis, and completeness. And when its lilies turned to roses, when it blushed under the sun's first kiss, it was beautiful beyond all description. One might well say, then, see Naples, and die. The frame of the picture was charming itself. In front the smooth sea, a vast mosaic of many colors, the lofty island swimming in a dreamy haze in the distance. At our end of the city the stately double peak of Vesuvius, and its strong black ribs and seams of lava stretching down to the limitless level Campania, 
a green carpet that enchants the eye, and leads it on and on, past clusters of trees, and isolated houses, and snowy villages, until it shreds out in a fringe of mist and general vagueness far away. It is from the Hermitage, there on the side of Vesuvius, that one should see Naples and die. But do not go within the walls and look at it in detail. That takes away some of the romance of the thing. The people are filthy in their habits, and this makes filthy streets and breeds disagreeable sights and smells. There never was a community so prejudiced against the cholera as these Neapolitans are, but they have good reason to be. The cholera generally vanquishes a Neapolitan when it seizes him, because, you understand, before the doctor can dig through the dirt and get at the disease, the man dies. The upper classes take a sea-bath every day, and are pretty decent. The streets are generally about wide enough for one wagon, and how they do swarm with people. It is Broadway repeated in every street, in every court, in every alley. Such masses, such throngs, such multitudes of hurrying, bustling, struggling humanity! We never saw the like of it, hardly even in New York, I think. There are seldom any sidewalks, and when there are, they are not often wide enough to pass a man on without caroming on him. So everybody walks in the street, and where the street is wide enough, carriages are forever dashing along. Why a thousand people are not run over and crippled every day is a mystery that no man can solve. But if there is an eighth wonder in the world, it must be the dwelling-houses of Naples. I honestly believe a good majority of them are a hundred feet high, and the solid brick walls are seven feet through. You go up nine flights of stairs before you get to the first floor. No, not nine, but there or thereabouts. There is a little bird-cage of an iron railing in front of every window clear away up, 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 among the eternal clouds, where the roof is, and there is always somebody looking out of every window, people of ordinary size looking out from the first floor, people a shade smaller from the second, people that look a little smaller yet from the third, and from thence upward they grow smaller and smaller by a regularly graduated diminution till the folks in the topmost windows seem more like birds, in an uncommonly tall martin-box, than anything else. The perspective of one of these narrow cracks of the streets, with its rows of tall houses stretching away till they come together in the distance like railway tracks, its clothes-lines crossing over at all altitudes and waving their bannered raggedness over the swarms of people below, and the white-dressed women perched in balcony-railings all the way from the pavement up to the heavens, a perspective like that is really worth going into Neapolitan details to see. Ascent of Vesuvius Continued Naples, with its immediate suburbs, contains 625,000 inhabitants, but I am satisfied it covers no more ground than an American city of 150,000. It reaches up into the air infinitely higher than three American cities, though, and there is where the secret of it lies. I will observe here, in passing, that the contrast between opulence and poverty, and magnificence and misery, are more frequent and more striking in Naples than in Paris, even. One must go to the Bois de Boulogne to see fashionable dressing, splendid equipages, and stunning liveries and to the Faubourg Saint-Antoine to see vice, misery, hunger, rags, dirt. But in the thoroughfares of Naples these things are all mixed together. 
naked boys of nine years and the fancy-dressed children of luxury, shreds and tatters and brilliant uniforms, jackass carts and state carriages, beggars, princes and bishops jostle each other in every street. At six o'clock every evening all Naples turns out to drive on the Riviere di Chiaja, whatever that may mean and for two hours one may stand there and see the motliest and the worst mixed procession go by that ever eyes beheld. Princes! There are more princes than policemen in Naples. The city is infested with them. Princes, who live up seven flights of stairs and don't own any principalities, will keep a carriage and go hungry. And clerks, mechanics, milliners, and strumpets will go without their dinners and squander the money on a hack-ride in the Chiaja. The rag-tag and rubbish of the city stack themselves up to the number of twenty or thirty on a rickety little go-cart hauled by a donkey not much bigger than a cat, and they drive in the Chiaja. Dukes and bankers, in sumptuous carriages, and with gorgeous drivers and footmen, turn out also, and so the furious procession goes. For two hours rank and wealth and obscurity and poverty clatter alongside by side in the wild procession, and then go home serene, happy covered with glory. I was looking at a magnificent marble staircase in the King's Palace the other day, which it was said cost five million francs, and I suppose it did cost half a million, maybe. I felt as if it must be a fine thing to live in a country where there was such comfort and such luxury as this, and then I stepped out, musing, and almost walked over a vagabond who was eating his dinner on the curbstone, a piece of bread and a bunch of grapes. When I found that this mustang was clerking in a fruit establishment—he had the establishment along with him in a basket—at two cents a day, and that he had no palace at home where he lived, I lost some of my enthusiasm concerning the happiness of living in Italy. This naturally suggests to me a thought about wages here. Lieutenants in the army get about a dollar a day, and common soldiers a couple of cents. I only know one clerk. He gets four dollars a month. Printers get six dollars and a half a month, but I have heard of a foreman who gets thirteen. To be growing suddenly and violently rich as this man is naturally makes him a bloated aristocrat. The airs he puts on are insufferable. And, speaking of wages, reminds me of prices of merchandise. In Paris you pay twelve dollars a dozen for Jovin's best kid gloves, gloves of about as good quality sell here at three or four dollars a dozen. You pay five and six dollars apiece for fine linen shirts in Paris. Here, and in Leghorn, you pay two and a half. In Marseilles, you pay forty dollars for a first-class dress coat made by a good tailor, but in Leghorn you can get a full-dress suit for the same money. Here you get handsome business suits at from ten to twenty dollars, and in Leghorn you can get an overcoat for fifteen dollars that would cost you seventy in New York. Fine kid boots are worth eight dollars in Marseilles and four dollars here. Lyon velvets rank higher in America than those of Genoa, yet the bulk of Lyon velvets you buy in the States are made in Genoa, and imported into Lyon, where they receive the Lyon stamp, and are then exported to America. You can buy enough velvet in Genoa for twenty-five dollars to make a five-hundred-dollar cloak in New York, so the ladies tell me. Of course these things bring me back, by a natural and easy transition, to the ascent of Vesuvius continued. And thus the wonderful blue grotto is suggested to me. 
It is situated on the island of Capri, twenty-two miles from Naples. We chartered a little steamer and went out there. Of course the police boarded us and put us through a health examination, and inquired into our politics before they would let us land. The airs these little insect governments put on are in the last degree ridiculous. They even put a policeman on board of our boat to keep an eye on us as long as we were in the Capri dominions. They thought we wanted to steal the grotto, I suppose. It was worth stealing. The entrance to the cave is four feet high and four feet wide, and is in the face of a lofty perpendicular cliff, the sea-wall. You enter in small boats, and a tight squeeze it is, too. You cannot go in at all when the tide is up. Once within, you find yourself in an arched cavern about one hundred and sixty feet long, one hundred twenty wide, and about seventy high. How deep it is, no man knows. It goes down to the bottom of the ocean. The waters of this placid subterranean lake are the brightest, loveliest blue that can be imagined. They are as transparent as plate-glass, and their coloring would shame the richest sky that ever bent over Italy. No tint could be more ravishing, no luster more superb. Throw a stone into the water, and the myriad of tiny bubbles that are created flash out a brilliant glare like blue theatrical fires. Dip an oar, and its blade turns to splendid frosted silver, tinted with blue. Let a man jump in, and instantly he is cased in an armor more gorgeous than ever kingly crusader wore. Then we went to Iskaya, but I had already been to that island, and tired myself to death resting a couple of days, and studying human villainy with the landlord of the Grande Sentinelle for a model. So we went to Procida, and from thence to Pozzuoli where St. Paul landed after he sailed from Samos. I landed at precisely the same spot where St. Paul landed, and so did Dan and the others. It was a remarkable coincidence. St. Paul preached to these people seven days before he started to Rome. Nero's Baths, the ruins of Baiae, the temple of Serapis, Cumae, where the Cumae Sibyl interpreted the oracles, the Lake Agnano, with its ancient submerged city still visible far down in its depths, these and a hundred other points of interest we examined with critical imbecility, but the Grotto of the Dog claimed our chief attention, because we had heard and read so much about it. Everybody has written about the Grotto del Cane and its poisonous vapors, from Pliny down to Smith, and every tourist has held a dog over its floor by the legs to test the capabilities of the place. The dog dies in a minute and a half, a chicken instantly. As a general thing, strangers who crawl in there to sleep do not get up until they are called, and then they don't either. The stranger that ventures to sleep there takes a permanent contract. I longed to see this grotto. I resolved to take a dog and hold him myself, suffocate him a little, and time him, suffocate him some more, and then finish him. We reached the grotto at about three in the afternoon, and proceeded at once to make the experiments. But now an important difficulty presented itself. We had no dog. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. At the Hermitage we were about fifteen or eighteen hundred feet above the sea, and thus far a portion of the ascent had been pretty abrupt. For the next two miles the road was a mixture. Sometimes the ascent was abrupt, and sometimes it was not. But one characteristic it possessed all the time, without failure, without modification. It was all uncompromisingly and unspeakably infamous. 
It was a rough, narrow trail, and led over an old lava-flow, a black ocean which was tumbled into a thousand fantastic shapes, a wild chaos of ruin, desolation, and barrenness, a wilderness of billowy upheavals, of furious whirlpools, of miniature mountains rent asunder, of gnarled and knotted, wrinkled and twisted masses of blackness that mimicked branching roots, great vines, trunks of trees, all interlaced and mingled together. And all these weird shapes, all this turbulent panorama, all this stormy, far-stretching waste of blackness, with its thrilling suggestiveness of life, of action, of boiling, surging, furious motion, was petrified, all stricken dead and cold, in the instant of its maddest rioting, fettered, paralyzed, and left to glower at heaven in impotent rage for evermore. Finally we stood in a level, narrow valley, a valley that had been created by the terrific march of some old-time eruption, and on either hand towered the two steep peaks of Vesuvius. The one we had to climb, the one that contains the active volcano, seemed about eight hundred or one thousand feet high, and looked almost too straight up and down for any man to climb, and certainly no mule could climb it with a man on his back. Four of these native pirates will carry you to the top in a sedan-chair, if you wish it, but suppose they were to slip and let you fall. Is it likely that you would ever stop rolling? Not this side of eternity, perhaps. We left the mules, sharpened our fingernails, and began the ascent I have been writing about so long, at twenty minutes to six in the morning. The path led straight up a rugged sweep of loose chunks of pumice-stone, and for about every two steps forward we took we slid back one. It was so excessively steep that we had to stop every fifty or sixty steps, and rest a moment. To see our comrades we had to look very nearly straight up at those above us, and very nearly straight down at those below. We stood on the summit at last. It had taken an hour and fifteen minutes to make the trip. What we saw there was simply a circular crater, a circular ditch, if you please, about two hundred feet deep, and four or five hundred feet wide whose inner wall was about a half-mile in circumference. In the centre of the great circus-ring thus formed was a torn and ragged upheaval a hundred feet high, all snowed over with a sulphur-crust of many and many a brilliant and beautiful colour, and the ditch enclosed this like the moat of a castle, or surrounded it as a little river does a little island, if the simile is better. The sulphur-coating of that island was gaudy in the extreme. All mingled together in the richest confusion were red, blue, brown, black, yellow, white—I do not know that there was a color or shade of a color, or combination of colors unrepresented. And when the sun burst through the morning mists, and fired this tinted magnificence, it topped imperial Vesuvius like a jeweled crown. The crater itself, the ditch, was not so variegated in coloring, but yet, in its softness, richness, and unpretentious elegance, it was more charming, more fascinating to the eye. There was nothing loud about its well-bred and well-creased look. Beautiful? One could stand and look down upon it for a week without getting tired of it. It had the semblance of a pleasant meadow, whose slender grasses and whose velvety mosses were frosted with a shining dust and tinted with palest green that deepened gradually to the darkest hue of the orange leaf, and deepened yet again into gravest brown, then faded into orange, then into brightest gold, and culminated in the delicate pink of a new-blown rose, 
where portions of the meadow had sunk, and where other portions had been broken up like an ice-flow, the cavernous openings of the one, and the ragged upturned edges exposed by the other, were hung with a lace-work of soft-tinted crystals of sulphur that changed their deformities into quaint shapes and figures that were full of grace and beauty. The walls of the ditch were brilliant with yellow banks of sulphur and with lava and pumice-stone of many colors. No fire was visible anywhere, but gusts of sulphurous steam issued silently and invisibly from a thousand little cracks and fissures in the crater, and were wafted to our noses with every breeze. But so long as we kept our nostrils buried in our handkerchiefs, there was small danger of suffocation. Some of the boys thrust long slips of paper down into holes and set them on fire, and so achieved the glory of lighting their cigars by the flames of Vesuvius and others cooked eggs over fissures in the rocks and were happy. The view from the summit would have been superb but for the fact that the sun could only pierce the mists at long intervals. Thus the glimpses we had of the grand panorama below were only fitful and unsatisfactory. THE DESCENT The descent of the mountain was a labor of only four minutes. Instead of stalking down the rugged path we ascended, we chose one which was bedded knee-deep in loose ashes, and ploughed our way with prodigious strides that would almost have shamed the performance of him of the seven-league boots. The Vesuvius of to-day is a very poor affair compared to the mighty volcano of Kilauea in the Sandwich Islands, but I am glad I visited it. It was well worth it. It is said that during one of the grand eruptions of Vesuvius it discharged massy rocks weighing many tons a thousand feet into the air. Its vast jets of smoke and steam ascended thirty miles towards the firmament, and clouds of its ashes were wafted abroad and fell upon the decks of ships seven hundred and fifty miles at sea. I will take the ashes at a moderate discount, if any one will take the thirty miles of smoke but I do not feel able to take a commanding interest in the whole story by myself. End of chapter 30 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain Chapter 31 The Buried City of Pompeii how dwellings appear that have been unoccupied for eighteen hundred years. The judgment seat. Desolation. The footprints of the departed. No women admitted. Theatres, bake-shops, schools. Skeletons preserved by the ashes and cinders. The brave martyr to duty. Rip Van Winkle. The perishable nature of fame. The buried city of Pompeii. They pronounce it Pompeii. I always had an idea that you went down into Pompeii with torches, by the way of damp, dark stairways, just as you do in silver mines, and traversed gloomy tunnels with lava overhead, and something on either hand like dilapidated prisons gouged out of the solid earth that faintly resembled houses. But you do nothing the kind. Fully one-half of the buried city, perhaps, is completely exhumed and thrown open freely to the light of day and there stand the long rows of solidly built brick houses, roofless, just as they stood eighteen hundred years ago, hot with the flaming sun, 
and there lie their floors, clean-swept, and not a bright fragment tarnished, or waiting of the labored mosaics that pictured them with the beasts and birds and flowers which we copy in perishable carpets to-day. And here are the Venuses, the Bacchuses, the Adonises, making love and getting drunk in many-hued frescoes on the walls of saloon and bedchamber, and there are the narrow streets and narrow sidewalks paved with flags of good hard lava, the one deeply rutted with the chariot-wheels, and the other with the passing feet of the Pompeians of bygone centuries, and there are the bake-shops, the temples, the halls of justice, the baths, the theatres, all clean, scraped, and neat, and suggesting nothing of the nature of a silver-mine way down in the bowels of the earth, the broken pillars lying about, the doorless doorways, and the crumbled tops of the wilderness of walls, were wonderfully suggestive of the burnt district in one of our cities, and if there had been any charred timbers, shattered windows, heap of debris, and general blackness and smokiness about the place, the resemblance would have been perfect. But no, the sun shines as brightly down on old Pompeii to-day as it did when Christ was born in Bethlehem, and its streets are cleaner a hundred times than ever Pompeian saw them in her prime. I know whereof I speak for in the great chief thoroughfares, Merchant Street and the Street of Fortune, have I not seen with my own eyes how for two hundred years at least the pavements were not repaired, how ruts five and even ten inches deep were worn into the thick flagstones by the chariot-wheels of generations of swindled taxpayers? And do I not know by these signs that street commissioners of Pompeii never attended to their business, and that if they never mended the pavements, they never cleaned them? And besides, is it not the inborn nature of street commissioners to avoid their duty whenever they get a chance? I wish I knew the name of the last one that held office in Pompeii so that I could give him a blast. I speak with feeling on this subject, because I caught my foot in one of those ruts, and the sadness that came over me when I saw the first poor skeleton, with ashes and lava sticking to it, was tempered by the reflection that maybe that party was the street commissioner. No, Pompeii is no longer a buried city. It is a city of hundreds and hundreds of roofless houses, and a tangled maze of streets where one could easily get lost, without a guide, and have to sleep in some ghostly palace that had known no living tenants since that awful November night of eighteen centuries ago. We pass through the gate which faces the Mediterranean, called the Marine Gate, and by the rusty, broken image of Minerva, still keeping tireless watch and ward over the possessions it was powerless to save, and went up a long street and stood in the broad court of the Forum of Justice. The floor was level and clean, and up and down either side was a noble colonnade of broken pillars, with their beautiful Ionic and Corinthian columns scattered about them. At the upper end were the vacant seats of the judges, and behind them we descended into a dungeon where the ashes and cinders had found two prisoners chained on that memorable November night, and tortured them to death. How they must have tugged at the pitiless fetters as the fierce fires surged around them! Then we lounged through many and many a sumptuous private mansion which we could not have entered without a formal invitation in incomprehensible Latin in olden time, when the owners lived there, and we probably wouldn't have got it. These people built their houses a good deal alike. The floors were laid in fanciful figures wrought in mosaics of many-colored marbles. At the threshold your eyes fall upon a Latin sentence of welcome, sometimes, or a picture of a dog, with the legend, 
beware of the dog, and sometimes a picture of a bear or a fawn with no inscription at all. Then you enter a sort of vestibule, where they used to keep the hat-rack, I suppose. Next a room with a large marble basin in the midst and the pipes of a fountain. On either side are bedrooms. Beyond the fountain is a reception-room, then a little garden, dining-room, and so forth and so on. The floors were all mosaic, the walls were stuccoed or frescoed, or ornamented with bas-reliefs, and here and there were statues, large and small, and little fish-pools, and cascades of sparkling water that sprang from secret places in the colonnade of handsome pillars that surrounded the court, and kept the flower-beds fresh and the air cool. Those Pompeians were very luxurious in their tastes and habits. The most exquisite bronzes we have seen in Europe came from the exhumed cities of Herculaneum and Pompeii, and also the finest cameos and the most delicate engravings on precious stones. Their pictures, eighteen or nineteen centuries old, are often much more pleasing than the celebrated rubbish of the old masters of three centuries ago. They were well up in art. From the creation of these works of the first, clear up to the eleventh century, art seems hardly to have existed at all, at least no remnants of it are left, and it was curious to see how far, in some things at any rate, these old-time pagans excelled the remote generations of masters that came after them. The pride of the world in sculptures seemed to be the Laocoon and the dying gladiator in Rome. They are as old as Pompeii were dug from the earth like Pompeii, but their exact age or who made them can only be conjectured. But, worn and cracked, without a history, and with the blemished stains of numberless centuries upon them, they still mutely mock at all efforts to rival their perfections. It was a quaint and curious pastime, wandering through this old silent city of the dead, lounging through utterly deserted streets where thousands and thousands of human beings once bought and sold, and walked and rode, and made the place resound with the noise and confusion of traffic and pleasure. They were not lazy. They hurried in those days. We have evidence of that. There was a temple on one corner, and it was a shorter cut to go between the columns of that temple from one street to the other than to go around and behold that pathway had been worn deep into the heavy flagstone floor of the building by generations of time-saving feet. They would not go around when it was quicker to go through. We do that in our cities. Everywhere you see things that make you wonder how old these old houses were before the night of destruction came, things, too, which bring back those long-dead inhabitants and place the living before your eyes. For instance, the steps, two feet thick lava-blocks, that lead up out of the school, and the same kind of steps that lead up into the dress-circle of the principal theatre, are almost worn through. For ages the boys hurried out of that school, and for ages their parents hurried into that theatre, and the nervous feet that have been dust and ashes for eighteen centuries have left their record for us to read to-day. I imagined I could see crowds of gentlemen and ladies thronging into the theatre with tickets for secured seats in their hands, and on the wall I read the imaginary placard, in an infamous grammar, positively no free list except members of the press. Hanging about the doorway, I fancied, were slouchy Pompeian street-boys uttering slang and profanity, and keeping a wary eye out for checks. I entered the theatre, and sat down in one of the long rows of stone benches in the dress-circle and looked at the place for the orchestra, and the ruined stage, and around at the wide sweep of empty boxes, and thought to myself, this house won't pay. 
I tried to imagine the music in full blast, the leader of the orchestra beating time, and the versatile so-and-so, who had just returned from a most successful tour in the provinces to play his last and farewell engagement of positively six nights only in Pompeii, previous to his departure for Herculaneum, charging around the stage and piling the agony mountains high, but I could not do it with such a house as that. Those empty benches tied my fancy down to dull reality. I said, these people that ought to be here have been dead and still and mouldering to dust for ages and ages, and will never care for the trifles and follies of life any more forever. Owing to circumstances, etc., etc., there will not be any performance to-night. Close down the curtain, put out the lights. And so I turned away and went through shop after shop and store after store, far down the long street of the merchants, and called for the wares of Rome and the East, but the tradesmen were gone. The marts were silent, and nothing was left but the broken jars, all set in cement of cinders and ashes. The wine and the oil that once had filled them were gone with their owners. In a bake-shop was a mill for grinding the grain, and the furnaces for baking the bread. And they say that here, in the same furnaces, the exhumers of Pompeii found nice, well-baked loaves which the baker had not found time to remove from the ovens the last time he left his shop because circumstances compelled him to leave in such a hurry. In one house, the only building in Pompeii which no woman is now allowed to enter, were the small rooms and short beds of solid masonry, just as they were in the old times, and on the walls were pictures which looked almost as fresh as if they were painted yesterday, but which no pen could have the hardiness to describe. And here and there were Latin inscriptions, obscene scintillations of wit, scratched by hands that possibly were uplifted to heaven for succor in the midst of a driving storm of fire before the night was done. In one of the principal streets was a ponderous stone tank, and a water-spout that supplied it, and where the tired, heated toilers from the companion used to rest their right hands when they bent over to put their lips to the spout, the thick stone was worn down to a broad groove an inch or two deep. Think of the countless thousands of hands that had pressed that spot in the ages that are gone, to so reduce a stone that is as hard as iron. They had a great public bulletin board in Pompeii, a place where announcements for gladiatorial combats, elections, and such things were posted, not on perishable paper, but carved in enduring stone. One lady, who, I take it, was rich and well brought up, advertised a dwelling or so to rent, with baths and all the modern improvements and several hundred shops stipulating that the dwellings should not be put to immoral purposes. You can find out who lived in many a house in Pompeii by the carved stone door-plates affixed to them, and in the same way you can tell who they were that occupied the tombs. Everywhere around are things that reveal to you something of the customs and history of this forgotten people. But what would a volcano leave of an American city if it once rained its cinders on it? hardly a sign or a symbol to tell its story. In one of these long Pompeian halls the skeleton of a man was found, with ten pieces of gold in one hand and a large key in the other. He had seized his money and started toward the door, but the fiery tempest caught him at the very threshold, and he sank down and died. One more minute of precious time would have saved him. I saw the skeletons of a man, a woman, and two young girls. The woman had her hands spread wide apart as if in mortal terror, 
and I imagined I could still trace upon her shapeless face something of the expression of wild despair that distorted it when the heavens rained fire in these streets so many ages ago. The girls and the man lay with their faces upon their arms, as if they had tried to shield them from the enveloping cinders. In one apartment eighteen skeletons were found, all in sitting postures, and blackened places on the walls still mark their shapes and show their attitudes, their shadows. One of them, a woman, still wore upon her skeleton throat a necklace, with her name engraved upon it, Julie di Diomedi. But perhaps the most poetical thing Pompey has yielded to modern research was that grand figure of a Roman soldier clad in complete armor, who, true to his duty, true to his proud name of a soldier of Rome, and full of the stern courage which had given to that name its glory, stood to his post by the city gate, erect and unflinching, till the hell that raged around him burned out the dauntless spirit it could not conquer. We never read of Pompey, but we think of that soldier. We cannot write of Pompey without the natural impulse to grant to him the mention he so well deserves. Let us remember that he was a soldier, not a policeman, and so praise him. Being a soldier, he stayed, because the warrior instinct forbade him to fly. Had he been a policeman, he would have stayed also, because he would have been asleep. There are not half a dozen flights of stairs in Pompeii, and no other evidence that the houses were more than one story high. The people did not live in the clouds, as do the Venetians, the Genoese, and the Neapolitans of today. We came out from under the solemn mysteries of this city of the venerable past, this city which perished, with all its old ways and its quaint old fashions about it, remote centuries ago, when the disciples were preaching the new religion, which is as old as the hills to us now, and went dreaming among the trees that grow over acres and acres of its still buried streets and squares, till a shrill whistle and the cry of, All aboard! Last train for Naples! woke me up and reminded me that I belonged in the nineteenth century, and was not a dusty mummy, caked with ashes and cinders, eighteen hundred years old. The transition was startling the idea of a railroad train actually running to old dead Pompeii and whistling irreverently and calling for passengers in the most bustling and businesslike way was as strange a thing as one could imagine, and as unpoetical and disagreeable as it was strange. Compare the cheerful life and the sunshine of this day with the horrors the younger Pliny saw here, the ninth of November, A.D. 79, when he was so bravely striving to remove his mother out of the reach of harm, while she begged him with all a mother's unselfishness to leave her to perish and save himself. By this time the murky darkness had so increased that one might have believed himself abroad in a black and moonless night, or in a chamber where all the lights had been extinguished. On every hand was heard the complaints of women, the wailing of children, and the cries of men. One called his father, another his son, and another his wife, and only by their voices could they know each other. Many in their despair begged that death would come and end their distress. Some implored the gods to succor them, and some believed that this night was the last, the eternal night which should engulf the universe. Even so it seemed to me, and I consoled myself for the coming death with a reflection, Behold, the world is passing away. After browsing among the stately ruins of Rome, of Bai, of Pompeii, and after glancing down the long marble ranks of battered and nameless imperial heads that stretch down the corridors of the Vatican, one thing strikes me with a force it never had before—the unsubstantial, unlasting character of fame. 
Men lived long lives in the olden time, and struggled feverishly through them, toiling like slaves, in oratory, in generalship, or in literature, and then laid them down and died, happy in the possession of an enduring history and a deathless name. Well, twenty little centuries flutter away, and what is left of these things? A crazy inscription on a block of stone, which snuffy antiquaries bother over and tangle up and make nothing out of, but a bare name, which they spell wrong, no history, no tradition, no poetry, nothing that can give it even a passing interest. What may be left of General Grant's great name forty centuries hence? This, in the encyclopedia for A.D. 5868, possibly. Uriah S., or Z., Grant, popular poet of ancient times in the Aztec provinces of the United States of British America. Some authors say flourished about A.D. 742, but the learned Aa Fufu states that he was a contemporary of Sharkspear, the English poet, and flourished about A.D. 1328, some three centuries after the Trojan War instead of before it. He wrote, Rock Me to Sleep, Mother. These thoughts sadden me. I will to bed. End of chapter 31 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 32. At Sea Once More. The Pilgrims All Well. Superb Stromboli. Sicily by Moonlight. Scylla and Charybdis. The Oracle at Fault. Skirting the Isles of Greece, Ancient Athens blockaded by quarantine and refused permission to enter, running the blockade, a bloodless midnight adventure, turning robbers from necessity, attempt to carry the Acropolis by storm. We fail. Among the glories of the past, a world of ruined sculpture, a fairy vision, famous localities, retreating in good order, captured by the guards, traveling in military state, safe on board again. Home again! For the first time in many weeks the ship's entire family met and shook hands on the quarter-deck. They had gathered from many points of the compass and from many lands, but not one was missing. There was no tale of sickness or death among the flock to dampen the pleasure of the reunion. Once more there was a full audience on deck to listen to the sailors' chorus as they got the anchor up, and to wave an adieu to the land as we sped away from Naples. The seats were full at dinner again, the domino parties were complete, and the life and bustle on the upper deck in the fine moonlight at night was like old times. Old times that had been gone weeks only, but yet they were weeks so crowded with incident, adventure, and excitement that they seemed almost like years. There was no lack of cheerfulness on board of the Quaker City. For once her title was a misnomer. At seven in the evening, with the western horizon all golden from the sunken sun, and specked with distant ships, the full moon sailing high overhead, the dark blue of the sea underfoot, and a strange sort of twilight affected by all these different lights and colors around us and about us, we sighted superb Stromboli, with what majesty the monarch held his lonely state above the level sea. Distance clothed him in a purple gloom, and added a veil of shimmering mist that so softened his rugged features that we seemed to see him through a web of silver gauze. 
His torch was out. His fires were smouldering. A tall column of smoke that rose up and lost itself in the growing moonlight was all the sign he gave that he was a living autocrat of the sea, and not the spectre of a dead one. At two in the morning we swept through the Straits of Messina, and so bright was the moonlight that Italy on the one hand and Sicily on the other seemed almost as distinctly visible as though we looked at them from the middle of a street we were traversing. The city of Messina, milk-white and starred and spangled all over with gaslights, was a fairy spectacle. A great party of us were on deck smoking and making a noise, and waiting to see famous Scylla and Charybdis and presently the oracle stepped out with his eternal spy-glass and squared himself on the deck like another colossus of Rhodes. It was a surprise to see him aboard at such an hour. Nobody supposed he cared anything about an old fable like that of Scylla and Charybdis. One of the boys said, "'Hello, doctor. What are you doing up here at this time of night? What do you want to see this place for?' "'What do I want to see this place for? Young man, little do you know me or you wouldn't ask such a question. I wish to see all the places that's mentioned in the Bible. Stuff! This place isn't mentioned in the Bible. It ain't mentioned in the Bible. This place ain't—well, now, what place is this, since you know so much about it? Why, it's Scylla and Charybdis. Scylla and Ca—confound it! I thought it was Sodom and Gomorrah. And he closed up his glass and went below. The above is the ship story. Its plausibility is marred a little by the fact that the oracle was not a biblical student, and did not spend much of his time instructing himself about scriptural localities. They say the oracle complains in this hot weather, lately, that the only beverage in the ship that is passable is the butter. He did not mean butter, of course, but inasmuch as that article remains in a melted state now since we are out of ice, it is fair to give him the credit of getting one long word in the right place, anyhow, for once in his life. He said in Rome that the Pope was a noble-looking old man, but he never did think much of his Iliad. We spent one pleasant day skirting along the isles of Greece. They were very mountainous. Their prevailing tints are gray and brown, approaching to red. Little white villages surrounded by trees nestle in the valleys or roost upon the lofty perpendicular sea-walls. We had one fine sunset, a rich carmine flush that suffused the western sky and cast a ruddy glow far over the sea. Fine sunsets seem to be rare in this part of the world, or at least striking ones. They are soft, sensuous, lovely. They are exquisite, refined, effeminate, but we have seen no sunsets here yet like the gorgeous conflagrations that flame in the track of the sinking sun in our high northern latitudes. But what were sunsets to us, with the wild excitement upon us of approaching the most renowned of cities? What cared we for outward visions when Agamemnon, Achilles, and a thousand other heroes of the great past were marching in ghostly procession through our fancies? What were sunsets to us, who were about to live and breathe and walk in actual Athens? Yea, and go far down into the dead centuries, and bid in person for the slaves, Diogenes and Plato, in the public market-place, or gossip with the neighbors about the siege of Troy, or the splendid deeds of Marathon? We scorned to consider sunsets. We arrived and entered the ancient harbor of the Piraeus at last. We dropped anchor within half a mile of the village. Away off, across the undulating plain of Attica, could be seen a little square-topped hill with a something on it, 
which our glasses soon discovered to be the ruined edifices of the citadel of the Athenians, and most prominent among them loomed the venerable Parthenon. So exquisitely clear and pure is this wonderful atmosphere that every column of the noble structure was discernible through the telescope, and even the smaller ruins about it assumed some semblance of shape. This at a distance of five or six miles. In the valley near the Acropolis, the square-topped hill before spoken of, Athens itself could be vaguely made out with an ordinary lorgnette. Everybody was anxious to get ashore and visit these classic localities as quickly as possible. No land we had yet seen had aroused such universal interest among the passengers. But bad news came. The commandant of the Piraeus came in his boat and said we must either depart or else get outside the harbor and remain imprisoned in our ship, under rigid quarantine, for eleven days. So we took up anchor and moved outside, to lie a dozen hours or so, taking in supplies, and then sail for Constantinople. It was the bitterest disappointment we had yet experienced, to lie a whole day in sight of the Acropolis, and yet be obliged to go away without visiting Athens. Disappointment was hardly a strong enough word to describe the circumstances. All hands were on deck all the afternoon, with books and maps and glasses, trying to determine which narrow rocky ridge was the Areopagus, which sloping hill the Pnyx, which elevation the Museum Hill, and so on. And we got things confused, discussion became heated, and party spirit ran high. Church members were gazing with emotion upon the hill which they said was the one St. Paul preached from, and another faction claimed that that hill was Hymettus, and another that it was Pendelicon. After all the trouble, we could be certain of only one thing. The square-topped hill was the Acropolis, and the grand ruin that crowned it was the Parthenon, whose picture we knew in infancy in the school-books. We inquired of everybody who came near the ship whether there were guards in the Piraeus, whether they were strict, what the chances were of capture should any of us slip ashore, and in case any of us made the venture and were caught, what would be probably done to us. The answers were discouraging. There was a strong guard or police force. The Piraeus was a small town, and any stranger seen in it would surely attract attention. Capture would be certain. The commandant said the punishment would be heavy. When asked how heavy, he said it would be very severe. That was all we could get out of him. At eleven o'clock at night, when most of the ship's company were abed, four of us stole softly ashore in a small boat, a clouded moon favoring the enterprise, and started, two and two, and far apart, over a low hill, intending to go clear around the Piraeus, out of the range of its police. Picking our way so stealthily over that rocky, nettle-grown eminence made me feel a good deal as if I were on my way somewhere to steal something. My immediate comrade and I talked in an undertone about quarantine laws and their penalties, but we found nothing cheering in the subject. I was posted. Only a few days before I was talking with our captain, and he mentioned the case of a man who swam ashore from a quarantine ship somewhere, and got imprisoned six months for it. And, when he was in Genoa a few years ago, a captain of a quarantine ship went in his boat to a departing ship, which was already outside of the harbor, and put a letter on board to be taken to his family, and the authorities imprisoned him three months for it, and then conducted him and his ship fairly to sea, and warned him never to show himself in that port again while he lived. 
This kind of conversation did no good, further than to give a sort of dismal interest to our quarantine-breaking expedition, and so we dropped it. We made the entire circuit of the town without seeing anybody but one man, who stared at us curiously, but said nothing, and a dozen persons asleep on the ground before their doors, whom we walked among and never woke, but we woke up dogs enough, in all conscience, we always had one or two barking at our heels, and several times we had as many as ten and twelve at once. They made such a preposterous din that persons aboard our ship said they could tell how we were progressing for a long time, and where we were, by the barking of the dogs. The clouded moon still favored us. When we had made the whole circuit, and were passing among the houses on the further side of the town, the moon came out splendidly, but we no longer feared the light. As we approached a well, near a house, to get a drink, the owner merely glanced at us and went within. He left the quiet slumbering town at our mercy. I recorded here proudly that we didn't do anything to it. Seeing no road, we took a tall hill to the left of the distant Acropolis for a mark, and steered straight for it over all obstructions, and over a little rougher piece of country than exists anywhere else outside of the state of Nevada, perhaps. Part of the way it was covered with small, loose stones. We trod on six at a time, and they all rolled. Another part of it was dry, loose, newly ploughed ground. Still another part of it was a long stretch of low grapevines, which were tanglesome and troublesome, and which we took to be brambles. The attic plain, barring the grapevines, was a barren, desolate, unpoetical waste. I wonder what it was in Greece's age of glory five hundred years before Christ. In the neighborhood of one o'clock in the morning, when we were heated with fast walking and parched with thirst, Denny exclaimed, "'Why, these weeds are grapevines!' And in five minutes we had a score of bunches of large, white, delicious grapes, and were reaching down for more, when a dark shape rose mysteriously up out of the shadows beside us, and said, "'Ho!' And so we left. In ten minutes more we struck into a beautiful road, and unlike some others we had stumbled upon at intervals, it led in the right direction. We followed it. It was broad and smooth, and white, handsome and in perfect repair, and shaded on both sides for a mile or so with single ranks of trees, and also with luxuriant vineyards. Twice we entered and stole grapes, and the second time somebody shouted at us from some invisible place, whereupon we left again. We speculated in grapes no more on that side of Athens. Shortly we came upon an ancient stone aqueduct, built upon arches, and from that time forth we had ruins all about us. We were approaching our journey's end. We could not see the Acropolis now, or the high hill either, and I wanted to follow the road till we were abreast of them. But the others overruled me, and we toiled laboriously up the stony hill immediately in our front, and from its summit saw another, climbed it, and saw another. It was an hour of exhausting work. Soon we came upon a row of open graves cut in the solid rock, for a while one of them served Socrates for a prison. We passed around the shoulder of the hill, and the citadel in all its ruined magnificence burst upon us. We hurried across the ravine and up a winding road, and stood on the old Acropolis, with the prodigious walls of the citadel towering above our heads. We did not stop to inspect their massive blocks of marble, or measure their height, or guess at their extraordinary thickness, but passed at once through a great arched passage, like a railway tunnel, and went straight to the gate that leads to the ancient temples. It was locked. 
So after all it seemed that we were not to see the great Parthenon face to face. We sat down and held a council of war. Result. The gate was only a flimsy structure of wood. We would break it down. It seemed like desecration. But then we had traveled far, and our necessities were urgent. We could not hunt up guides and keepers. We must be on the ship before daylight. So we argued. This was all very fine, but when we came to break the gate we could not do it. We moved around an angle of the wall and found a low bastion, eight feet high without, ten or twelve within. Denny prepared to scale it, and we got ready to follow. By dint of hard scrambling he finally straddled the top, but some loose stones crumbled away and fell with a crash into the court within. There was instantly a banging of doors and a shout. Denny dropped from the wall in a twinkling, and we retreated in disorder to the gate. Xerxes took that mighty citadel four hundred and eighty years before Christ, when his five millions of soldiers and camp-followers followed him to Greece, and if we four Americans could have remained unmolested five minutes longer, we would have taken it, too. The garrison had turned out. Four Greeks. We clambered at the gate, and they admitted us. Bribery and corruption. We crossed a large court, entered a great door, and stood upon a pavement of purest white marble, deeply worn by footprints. Before us, in the flooding moonlight, rose the noblest ruins we had ever looked upon, the Propylaea, a small temple of Minerva, the Temple of Hercules, and the Grand Parthenon. We got these names from the Greek guide, who didn't seem to know more than seven men ought to know. These edifices were all built of the whitest pentelic marble, but have a pinkish stain upon them now. Where any part is broken, however, the fracture looks like fine loaf-sugar. Six Caryatides, or marble women, clad in flowing robes, support the portico of the temples of Hercules, but the porticoes and colonnades of the other structures are formed of massive Doric and Ionic pillars, whose flutings and capitals are still measurably perfect, notwithstanding the centuries that have gone over them and the sieges they have suffered. The Parthenon originally was two hundred and twenty-six feet long, one hundred wide, and seventy high, and has two rows of great columns, eight in each, at either end, and single rows of seventeen each down the sides, and was one of the most graceful and beautiful edifices ever erected. Most of the Parthenon's imposing columns are still standing, but the roof is gone. It was a perfect building two hundred and fifty years ago when a shell dropped into the Venetian magazine stored here, and the explosion which followed wrecked and unroofed it. I remember but little about the Parthenon, and I have put in one or two facts and figures for the use of other people with short memories, got them from the guide-book. As we wandered thoughtfully down the marble-paved length of this stately temple, the scene about us was strangely impressive. Here and there, in lavish profusion, were gleaming white statues of men and women propped against blocks of marble, some of them armless, some without legs, others headless, but all looking mournful in the moonlight, and startlingly human. They rose up and confronted the midnight intruder on every side. They stared at him with stony eyes from unlooked-for nooks and recesses. They peered at him over fragmentary heaps far down the desolate corridors. They barred his way in the midst of the broad forum, and solemnly pointed with handless arms the way from the sacred fane. And through the roofless temple the moon looked down, and banded the floor, and darkened the scattered fragments and broken statues with the slanting shadows of the columns. What a world of ruined sculpture was about us! 
set up in rows, stacked up in piles, scattered broadcast over the wide area of the Acropolis, were hundreds of crippled statues of all sizes and of the most exquisite workmanship, and vast fragments of marble that once belonged to the entablatures, covered with bas-reliefs, representing battles and sieges, ships of war with three or four tiers of oars, pageants and processions, everything one could think of. History says that the temples of the Acropolis were filled with the noblest works of Praxiteles and Phidias, and of many a great master in sculpture besides, and surely these elegant fragments attest it. We walked out into the grass-grown, fragment-strewn court beyond the Parthenon. It startled us every now and then to see a stony white face stare suddenly up at us, out of the grass with its dead eyes. The place seemed alive with ghosts. I half expected to see the Athenian heroes of twenty centuries ago glide out of the shadows and steal into the old temple they knew so well, and regarded with such boundless pride. The full moon was riding high in the cloudless heavens now. We sauntered carelessly and unthinkingly to the edge of the lofty battlements of the citadel, and looked down. A vision! And such a vision! Athens by moonlight! The prophet that thought the splendors of the new Jerusalem were revealed to him surely saw this instead. It lay in the level plain right under our feet, all spread abroad like a picture, and we looked down upon it as we might have looked from a balloon. We saw no semblance of a street, but every house, every window, every clinging vine, every projection was as distinct and sharply marked as if the time were noonday, and yet there was no glare, no glitter, nothing harsh or repulsive. The noiseless city was flooded with the mellowest light that ever streamed from the moon, and seemed like some living creature wrapped in peaceful slumber. On its further side was a little temple, whose delicate pillars and ornate front glowed with a rich luster that chained the eye like a spell. And nearer by, the palace of the king reared its creamy walls out of the midst of a great garden of shrubbery that was flecked all over with a random shower of amber lights, a spray of golden sparks that lost their brightness in the glory of the moon, and glinted softly upon the sea of dark foliage like the pallid stars of the Milky Way. Overhead the stately columns, majestic still in their ruin, underfoot the dreaming city, in the distance the silver sea, not on the broad earth is there any other picture half so beautiful. As we turned and moved again through the temple I wished that the illustrious men who had sat in it, in the remote ages, could visit it again and reveal themselves to our curious eyes. Plato, Aristotle, Demosthenes, Socrates, Phocion, Pythagoras, Euclid, Pindar, Xenophon, Herodotus, Praxiteles, and Phidias, Zeuxis the painter. What a constellation of celebrated names! But more than all, I wish that old Diogenes, groping so patiently with his lantern, searching so zealously for one solitary honest man in all the world, might meander along and stumble on our party. I ought not to say it, maybe, but still, I suppose, he would have put out his light. We left the Parthenon to keep its watch over old Athens, as it had kept it for twenty-three hundred years, and went and stood outside the walls of the citadel. In the distance was the ancient but still almost perfect temple of Theseus, and close by, looking to the west, was the Bema, from whence Demosthenes thundered his Philippics and fired the wavering patriotism of his countrymen. To the right was Mars Hill, where the Areopagus sat in ancient times, and where St. Paul defined his position, 
and below was the market-place where he disputed daily with the gossip-loving Athenians. We climbed the stone steps St. Paul ascended, and stood in the square-cut place he stood in, and tried to recollect the Bible account of the matter, but for certain reasons I could not recall the words. I have found them since. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him, when he saw the city wholly given up to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. And they took him, and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom, therefore, ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Acts chapter 17 It occurred to us, after a while, that if we wanted to get home before daylight betrayed us, we had better be moving. So we hurried away. When far on our road we had a parting view of the Parthenon, with the moonlight streaming through its open colonnades, and touching its capitals with silver. As it looked then, solemn, grand, and beautiful, it will always remain in our memories. As we marched along we began to get over our fears, and ceased to care much about quarantine scouts or anybody else. We grew bold and reckless. And once, in a sudden burst of courage, I even threw a stone at a dog. It was a pleasant reflection, though, that I did not hit him because his master might just possibly have been a policeman. Inspired by this happy failure, my valor began utterly uncontrollable, and at intervals I absolutely whistled, though on a moderate key. But boldness breeds boldness, and shortly I plunged into a vineyard, in the full light of the moon, and captured a gallon of superb grapes, not even minding the presence of a peasant who rode by on a mule. Denny and Birch followed my example. Now I had grapes enough for a dozen, but then Jackson was all swollen up with courage, too, and he was obliged to enter a vineyard presently. The first bunch he seized brought trouble. A frowsy, bearded brigand sprang into the road with a shout, and flourished a musket in the light of the moon. We sidled towards the Piraeus, not running, you understand, but only advancing with celerity. The brigand shouted again, but still we advanced. It was getting late, and we had no time to fool away on every ass that wanted to drivel Greek platitudes to us. We would just as soon have talked with him as not, if we had not been in a hurry. Presently Denny said, "'Those fellows are following us.' We turned, and sure enough there they were, three fantastic pirates armed with guns. We slackened our pace and let them come up, and in the meantime I got out my cargo of grapes and dropped them firmly but reluctantly into the shadows by the wayside. But I was not afraid. I only felt that it was not right to steal grapes, and all the more so when the owner was around, and not only around, but with his friends around also. The villains came up and searched a bundle Dr. Birch had in his hand, and scowled upon him when they found it had nothing in it but some holy rocks from Mars Hill, and these were not contraband. They evidently suspected him of playing some wretched fraud upon them, and seemed half inclined to scalp the party. But finally they dismissed us with a warning couched in excellent Greek, I suppose, and dropped tranquilly in our wake. When they had gone three hundred yards they stopped, and we went on rejoiced. But behold, another armed rascal came out of the shadows and took their place, and followed us two hundred yards. Then he delivered us over to another miscreant, who emerged from some mysterious place, and he in turn to another. 
For a mile and a half our rear was guarded all the while by armed men. I never travelled in so much state before in all my life. It was a good while after that before we ventured to steal any more grapes. And when we did, we stirred up another troublesome brigand, and then we ceased all further speculation in that line. I suppose that fellow that rode by on the mule posted all the sentinels, from Athens to Piraeus, about us. Every field on that long route was watched by an armed sentinel, some of whom had fallen asleep, no doubt, but were on hand nevertheless. This shows what sort of a country modern Attica is, a community of questionable characters. These men were not there to guard their possessions against strangers, but against each other. For strangers seldom visit Athens and the Piraeus, and when they do, they go in daylight, and can buy all the grapes they want for a trifle. The modern inhabitants are confiscators and falsifiers of high repute, if gossip speaks truly concerning them, and I freely believe it does. Just as the earliest tinges of the dawn flushed the eastern sky and turned the pillared Parthenon to a broken harp hung in the pearly horizon, we closed our thirteenth mile of weary roundabout marching, and emerged upon the seashore abreast the ships, with our usual escort of fifteen hundred Parian dogs howling at our heels. We hailed a boat that was two or three hundred yards from shore, and discovered in a moment that it was a police-boat on the lookout for any quarantine-breakers that might chance to be abroad. So we dodged. We were used to that by this time, and when the scouts reached the spot we had so lately occupied, we were absent. They cruised along the shore, but in the wrong direction, and shortly our own boat issued from the gloom and took us aboard. They had heard our signal on the ship. We rowed noiselessly away, and before the police-boat came in sight again, we were safe at home once more. Four more of our passengers were anxious to visit Athens, and started half an hour after we returned. But they had not been ashore five minutes till the police discovered and chased them so hotly that they barely escaped to their boat again, and that was all. They pursued the enterprise no further. We set sail for Constantinople to-day, but some of us little care for that. We have seen all there was to see in the old city that had its birth sixteen hundred years before Christ was born and was an old town before the foundations of Troy were laid, and saw it in its most attractive aspect. Wherefore, why should we worry? Two other passengers ran the blockade successfully last night, so we learned this morning. They slipped away so quietly that they were not missed from the ship for several hours. They had the hardihood to march into the Piraeus in the early dusk and hire a carriage. They ran some danger of adding two or three months' imprisonment to the other novelties of their Holy Land pleasure excursion. I admire cheek, quotation from the pilgrims. But they went and came safely, and never walked a step. End of chapter 32 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad, Chapter 33 Modern Greece, Fallen Greatness, Sailing Through the Archipelago and the Dardanelles, Footprints of History, The First Shoddy Contractor of Whom History Gives Any Account, Anchored Before Constantinople, Fantastic Fashions, The Ingenious Goose Rancher, Marvelous Cripples, The Great Mosque, The Thousand and One Columns, the Grand Bazaar of Stamboul. 
From Athens all through the islands of the Grecian archipelago we saw little but forbidding sea-walls and barren hills, sometimes surmounted by three or four graceful columns of some ancient temple, lonely and deserted, a fitting symbol of the desolation that has come upon all Greece in these latter ages. We saw no ploughed fields, very few villages, no trees or grass or vegetation of any kind, scarcely, and hardly ever an isolated house. Greece is a bleak, unsmiling desert, without agriculture, manufactures, or commerce, apparently. What supports its poverty-stricken people or its government is a mystery. I suppose that ancient Greece and modern Greece compared furnished the most extravagant contrast to be found in history. George I, an infant of eighteen, and a scraggy nest of foreign office-holders, sit in the places of Themistocles, Pericles, and their illustrious scholars and generals of the golden age of Greece. The fleets that were the wonder of the world when the Parthenon was new are a beggarly handful of fishing-smacks now, and the manly people that performed such miracles of valor at Marathon are only a tribe of unconsidered slaves to-day. The classic Elysis has gone dry, and so have all the sources of Grecian wealth and greatness. The nation numbers only eight hundred thousand souls, and there is poverty and misery and mendacity enough among them to furnish forty millions and be liberal about it. Under King Otho the revenues of the state were five millions of dollars, raised from a tax of one-tenth of all the agricultural products of the land which tenth the farmer had to bring to the royal granaries on pack-mules any distance not exceeding six leagues, and from extravagant taxes on trade and commerce. Out of that five millions the small tyrant tried to keep an army of ten thousand men, pay all the hundreds of useless grand equerries in waiting, first grooms of the bedchamber, lord high chancellors of the exploded exchequer, and all the other absurdities which these puppy-kingdoms indulge in, in imitation of the great monarchies. And in addition he set about building a white marble palace to cost about five millions itself. The result was, simply, ten into five goes no times, and none over. All these things could not be done with five millions, and Otho fell into trouble. The Greek throne, with its unpromising adjuncts of a ragged population of ingenious rascals, who were out of employment eight months in the year, because there was little for them to borrow and less to confiscate, and a waste of barren hills and weed-grown deserts, went begging for a good while. It was offered to one of Victoria's sons, and afterwards to various other younger sons of royalty who had no thrones and were out of business, but they all had the charity to decline the dreary honour, and veneration enough for Greece's ancient greatness to refuse to mock her sorrowful rags and dirt with a tinsel throne in this day of her humiliation, till they came to this young Danish George, and he took it. He has finished the splendid palace I saw in the radiant moonlight the other night and is doing many other things for the salvation of Greece, they say. We sailed through the barren archipelago, and into the narrow channel they sometimes call the Dardanelles, and sometimes the Hellespont. This part of the country is rich in historic reminiscences, and poor as Sahara in everything else. For instance, as we approached the Dardanelles, we coasted along the plains of Troy, and passed the mouth of the Scamander. We saw where Troy had stood in the distance, and where it does not stand now, a city that perished when the world was young. The poor Trojans are all dead now, 
They were born too late to see Noah's Ark, and died too soon to see our menagerie. We saw where Agamemnon's fleets rendezvoused, and away inland a mountain which the map said was Mount Ida. Within the Hellespont we saw where the original first shoddy contract mentioned in history was carried out, and the parties of the second part gently rebuked by Xerxes. I speak of the famous bridge of boats which Xerxes ordered to be built over the narrowest part of the Hellespont, where it is only two or three miles wide. Moderate gales destroyed the flimsy structure, and the king, thinking that to publicly rebuke the contractors might have a good effect on the next set, called them out before the army and had them beheaded. In the next ten minutes he let a new contract for the bridge. It has been observed by ancient writers that the second bridge was a very good bridge. Xerxes crossed his host of five millions of men on it, and if it had not been purposely destroyed, it would probably have been there yet. If our government would rebuke some of our shoddy contractors occasionally, it might work much good. In the Hellespont we saw where Leander and Lord Byron swam across, the one to see her upon whom his soul's affections were fixed with a devotion that only death could impair, and the other merely for a flyer, as Jack says. We had two noted tombs near us, too. On one shore slept Ajax, and on the other Hecuba. We had water-batteries and forts on both sides of the Hellespont, flying the crimson flag of Turkey with its white crescent, and occasionally a village and sometimes a train of camels. We had all these to look at till we entered the broad sea of Marmora, and then, the land soon fading from view, we resumed Euchre and Whist once more. We dropped anchor in the mouth of the Golden Horn at daylight in the morning. Only three or four of us were up to see the great Ottoman capital. The passengers do not turn out at unseasonable hours, as they used to, to get the earliest possible glimpse of strange foreign cities. They are well over that. If we were lying in sight of the pyramids of Egypt, they would not come on deck until after breakfast nowadays. The Golden Horn is a narrow arm of the sea which branches from the Bosporus, a sort of broad river which connects the Marmora and Black Seas, and, curving around, divides the city in the middle. Galata and Pera are on one side of the Bosporus, and the Golden Horn, Stambul, ancient Byzantium, is upon the other. On the other bank of the Bosporus is Scutari, and other suburbs of Constantinople. This great city contains a million inhabitants, but so narrow are its streets, and so crowded together are its houses, that it does not cover much more than half as much ground as New York City. Seen from the anchorage, or from a mile or so up the Bosporus, it is by far the handsomest city we have seen. Its dense array of houses swells upward from the water's edge, and spreads over the domes of many hills, and the gardens that peep out here and there, the great globes of the mosques, and the countless minarets that meet the eye everywhere, invest the metropolis with the quaint oriental aspect one dreams of when he reads books of eastern travel. Constantinople makes a noble picture but its attractiveness begins and ends with its picturesqueness. From the time one starts ashore till he gets back again, he execrates it. The boat he goes in is admirably miscalculated for the service it is built for. It is handsomely and neatly fitted up, but no man could handle it well in the turbulent currents that sweep down the Bosporus from the Black Sea, and few men could row it satisfactorily even in still water. It is a long, light canoe, caique large at one end and tapering to a knife-blade at the other. They make that long, sharp end at the bow, and you can imagine how these boiling currents spin it about. 
It has two oars, and sometimes four, and no rudder. You start to go to a given point, and you run in fifty different directions before you get there. First one oar is backing water, and then the other. It is seldom that both are going ahead at once. This kind of boating is calculated to drive an impatient man mad in a week. The boatmen are the awkwardest, the stupidest, and the most unscientific on earth, without question. Ashore it was, well, it was an eternal circus. People were thicker than bees in those narrow streets, and the men were dressed in all outrageous, outlandish, idolatrous, extravagant thunder and lightning costumes that ever a tailor with the delirium tremens and seven devils could conceive of. There was no freak in dress too crazy to be indulged in, no absurdity too absurd to be tolerated, no frenzy in ragged diabolism too fantastic to be attempted. No two men were dressed alike. It was a wild masquerade of all imaginable costumes. Every struggling throng in every street was a dissolving view of stunning contrasts. Some patriarchs wore awful turbans, but the grand mass of the infidel horde wore the fiery red skull-cap they call a fez. All the remainder of the raiment they indulged in was utterly indescribable. The shops here are mere coops, mere boxes bathrooms, closets, anything you please to call them, on the first floor. The Turks sit cross-legged in them, and work and trade and smoke long pipes, and smell like—like Turks. That covers the ground. Crowding the narrow streets in front of them are beggars, who beg forever, yet never collect anything, and wonderful cripples, distorted out of all semblance of humanity, almost, vagabonds driving laden asses, porters carrying dry-goods boxes as large as cottages on their backs, peddlers of grapes, hot corn, pumpkin-seeds, and a hundred other things, yelling like fiends, and sleeping happily, comfortably, serenely, among the hurrying feet, are the famed dogs of Constantinople. Drifting noiselessly about are squads of Turkish women, draped from chin to feet in flowing robes, and with snowy veils bound about their heads, that disclose only the eyes and a vague shadowy notion of their features. Seen moving about, far away in the dim, arched aisles of the great bazaar, they look as the shrouded dead must have looked, when they walked forth from their graves amid the storms and thunders and earthquakes that burst upon Calvary that awful night of the crucifixion. A street in Constantinople is a picture which one ought to see once, not oftener. And then there was the Goose Rancher, a fellow who drove a hundred geese before him about the city and tried to sell them. He had a pole ten feet long with a crook in the end of it, and occasionally a goose would branch out from the flock and make a lively break around the corner, with wings half lifted and neck stretched to its utmost. Did the goose merchant get excited? No. He took his pole, and reached after that goose with unspeakable sang-froid, took a hitch around his neck, and yanked him back to his place in the flock without an effort. He steered his geese with that stick as easily as another man would steer a yawl. A few hours afterward we saw him sitting on a stone at a corner in the midst of the turmoil, sound asleep in the sun, with his geese squatting around him, or dodging out of the way of asses and men. We came by again, within the hour, and he was taking account of stock, to see whether any of his flock had strayed or been stolen. The way he did it was unique. He put the end of his stick within six or eight inches of a stone wall, and made the geese march in single file between it and the wall. He counted them as they went by. There was no dodging that arrangement. 
If you want dwarfs, I mean just a few dwarfs for curiosity, go to Genoa. If you wish to buy them by the gross for retail, go to Milan. There are plenty of dwarfs all over Italy. But it did seem to me that in Milan the crop was luxuriant. If you would see a fair average style of assorted cripples, go to Naples, or travel through the Roman states. But if you would see the very heart and home of cripples and human monsters both, go straight to Constantinople. A beggar in Naples, who can show a foot which has all run into one horrible toe, with one shapeless nail on it, has a fortune. But such an exhibition as that would not provoke any notice in Constantinople. The man would starve. Who would pay any attention to attractions like his among the rare monsters that throng the bridges of the Golden Horn, and display their deformities in the gutters of Stamboul? O oh, wretched impostor! How could he stand against the three-legged woman, and the man with his eye in his cheek? How would he blush in presence of the man with fingers on his elbow? Where would he hide himself when the dwarf with seven fingers on each hand, no upper lip, and his under-jaw gone, came down in his majesty? Bismillah! The cripples of Europe are a delusion and a fraud. The truly gifted flourish only in the byways of Pera and Stamboul. That three-legged woman lay on the bridge, with her stock-in-trade so disposed as to command the most striking effect, one natural leg, and two long, slender, twisted ones, with feet on them, like somebody else's forearm. Then there was a man further along who had no eyes, and whose face was the color of a fly-blown beefsteak, and wrinkled and twisted like a lava-flow, and verily so tumbled and distorted were his features that no man could tell the wart that served him for a nose from his cheekbones. In Stramboul was a man with a prodigious head, an uncommonly long body, legs eight inches long, and feet like snowshoes. He travelled on those feet and his hands, and was as sway-backed as if the Colossus of Rhodes had been riding him. Ah, a beggar has to have exceedingly good points to make a living in Constantinople. A blue-faced man, who had nothing to offer except that he had been blown up in a mine, would be regarded as a rank impostor, and a mere damaged soldier on crutches would never make a cent. It would pay him to get a piece of his head taken off, and cultivate a wen, like a carpet-sack. The Mosque of St. Sophia is the chief lion of Constantinople. You must get a firman and hurry there the first thing. We did that. We did not get a firman. But we took along four or five francs apiece, which is much the same thing. I do not think much of the Mosque of St. Sophia. I suppose I lack appreciation. We will let it go at that. It is the rustiest old barn in heathendom. I believe all the interest that attaches to it comes from the fact that it was built for a Christian church and then turned into a mosque without much alteration by the Mohammedan conquerors of the land. They made me take off my boots and walk into the place in my stocking feet. I caught cold, and got myself so stuck up with a complication of gums, slime, and general corruption that I wore out more than two thousand pair of boot-jacks getting my boots off that night, and even then some Christian hide peeled off with them. I abate not a single boot-jack. St. Sophia is a colossal church, thirteen or fourteen hundred years old, and unsightly enough to be very, very much older. Its immense dome is said to be more wonderful than St. Peter's, but its dirt is much more wonderful than its dome, though they never mention it. The church has a hundred and seventy pillars in it, each a single piece, and all of costly marbles of various kinds, 
but they came from ancient temples at Baalbek, Heliopolis, Athens, and Ephesus, and are battered, ugly, and repulsive. They were a thousand years old when this church was new, and then the contrast must have been ghastly, if Justinian's architects did not trim them any. The inside of the dome is figured all over with a monstrous inscription in Turkish characters, wrought in gold mosaic, that looks as glaring as a circus bill. The pavements and the marble balustrades are all battered and dirty. The perspective is marred everywhere by a web of ropes that depend from the dizzy height of the dome, and suspend countless dingy, coarse oil-lamps and ostrich eggs, six or seven feet above the ground. Squatting and sitting in groups here and there, and far and near, were ragged Turks reading books, hearing sermons, or receiving lessons like children, and in fifty places were more of the same sort, bowing and straightening up, bowing again, and getting down to kiss the earth, muttering prayers the while, and keeping up their gymnastics till they ought to have been tired, if they were not. Everywhere was dirt, and dust, and dinginess, and gloom. Everywhere were signs of hoary antiquity, but with nothing touching or beautiful about it. Everywhere were those groups of fantastic pagans, overhead the gaudy mosaics and the web of lamp-ropes, nowhere was there anything to win one's love or challenge his admiration. The people who go into ecstasies over St. Sophia must surely get them out of the guide-book, where every church is spoken of as being considered by good judges to be the most marvellous structure, in many respects, that the world has ever seen. Or else they are those old connoisseurs from the wilds of New Jersey who laboriously learn the differences between a fresco and a fire-plug, and from that day forward feel privileged to void their critical bathos on painting, sculpture, and architecture forevermore. We visited the dancing dervishes. There were twenty-one of them. They wore a long, light-colored loose robe that hung to their heels. Each in his turn went up to the priest—they were all within a large circular railing—and bowed profoundly, and then went spinning away deliriously and took his appointed place in the circle, and continued to spin. When all had spun themselves to their places—they were about five or six feet apart, and so situated—the entire circle of spinning pagans spun itself three separate times around the room. It took twenty-five minutes to do it. They spun on the left foot, and kept themselves going by passing the right rapidly before it and digging it against the waxed floor. Some of them made incredible time. Most of them spun around forty times in a minute and one artist averaged about sixty-one times a minute, and kept it up during the whole twenty-five, his robe filled with air, and stood out all around him like a balloon. They made no noise of any kind, and most of them tilted their heads back and closed their eyes, entranced with a sort of devotional ecstasy. There was a rude kind of music, part of the time, but the musicians were not visible. None but spinners were allowed within the circle. A man had to either spin or stay outside. It was about as barbarous an exhibition as we have witnessed yet. Then sick persons came and lay down, and beside them women laid their sick children, one a babe at the breast, and the patriarch of the dervishes walked upon their bodies. He was supposed to cure their diseases by trampling upon their breasts or backs, or standing on the back of their necks. This is well enough for people who think all their affairs are made or marred by viewless spirits of the air, by giants, gnomes, and genii and who still believe to this day all the wild tales in the Arabian Nights. Even so, an intelligent missionary tells me. 
We visited the thousand and one columns. I do not know what it was originally intended for, but they said it was built for a reservoir. It is situated in the center of Constantinople. You go down a flight of stone steps in the middle of a barren place, and there you are. You are forty feet underground, and in the midst of a perfect wilderness of tall, slender granite columns of Byzantine architecture. Stand where you would, or change your position as often as you pleased, you were always a center from which radiated a dozen long archways and colonnades that lost themselves in distance and the somber twilight of the place. This old dried-up reservoir is occupied by a few ghostly silk-spinners now, and one of them showed me a cross cut high up in one of the pillars. I suppose he meant me to understand that the institution was there before the Turkish occupation, and I thought he made a remark to that effect. But he must have had an impediment in his speech, for I did not understand him. We took off our shoes and went into the marble mausoleum of the Sultan Mahmud, the neatest piece of architecture inside that I have seen lately. Mahmud's tomb was covered with a black velvet pall, which was elaborately embroidered with silver. It stood within a fancy silver railing. At the sides and corners were silver candlesticks that would weigh more than a hundred pounds, and they supported candles as large as a man's leg. On the top of the sarcophagus was a fez, with a handsome diamond ornament upon it, which an attendant said cost a hundred thousand pounds, and lied like a Turk when he said it. Mahmud's whole family were comfortably planted around him. We went to the great bazaar in Stamboul, of course, and I shall not describe it further than to say it is a monstrous hive of little shops, thousands, I should say, all under one roof, and cut up into innumerable little blocks by narrow streets which are arched overhead. One street is devoted to a particular kind of merchandise, another to another, and so on. When you wish to buy a pair of shoes, you have the swing of the whole street. You do not have to walk yourself down hunting stores in different localities. It is the same with silks, antiquities, shawls, etc. The place is crowded with people all the time, and as the gay-colored eastern fabrics are lavishly displayed before every shop, the great bazaar of Stamboul is one of the sights that are worth seeing. It is full of life and stir and business, dirt, beggars, asses, yelling peddlers, porters, dervishes, high-born Turkish female shoppers, Greeks, and weird-looking and weirdly-dressed Mohammedans from the mountains and the far provinces, and the only solitary thing one does not smell when he is in the great bazaar is something which smells good. End of chapter 33 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.